They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. This time it's more of a uh, occult author club. Going to cover uh, a dude that wrote a pamphlet and then sat on it for a while and then came back and rewrote it a little bit. Uh, but this one, this one's interesting because it started on some research into adrenochrome. That's that's how I actually came up with this guy's name. And by the way, his name is Benjamin Paul Blood, and he's got a, a badass name, which is surprising that. He's uh, there's not a lot of stuff about him out there unless you just go and read his book or his wiki article. But I was doing some research into adrenochrome and traced that back to some of the original anesthesia, the the original guys that were discovered ether and, and nitrous essentially. And Paul or Benjamin Paul Blood's whole story here is that he went to the dentist and he had a tooth extracted. And during the course of this, they gave him a whole bunch of nitrous. And I think it was a whole lot more than, you know, if, if me or you went to the dentist right now, they give you like a, a decent mixture of oxygen and nitrous. And it's like a constant stream. Although I was looking into it in the 1920s and before, they were giving a whole lot more nitrous, like, like an obscene amount of nitrous. And they would come down off of it over the course of, you know, 20 to 30 minutes or something like that. So anyways, <clears throat> Benjamin Paul Blood... He's coming down off nitrous and he starts having all these what he calls philosophical revelations and what it amounts to is that he just believed that he sort of understood you know everything being one and um like understanding how all these different philosophical concepts connected they all just added up to him, him as he was coming down off of this nitrous so he sits down and he writes a pamphlet <clears throat> by the way after 14 more years of experimenting at home on nitrous <laughs> <laughs> right he comes home from the dentist this one time says there's something to this and he basically self-experiments at home for 14 years and eventually he decides that um this information that he's he's discovering through his experimentation with nitrous is just too important for the world to lose and he was actually starting to legitimately become scared that he might die and this information that he kind of unlocked would just be lost to the world forever 
So this is sort of the the entry point and how Benjamin Paul Blood comes into the play a little bit here. And essentially he wrote specifically about this um, this revelation where you take some kind of uh, anesthetic, whether for him it was nitrous oxide, for others it was ether, um, and you can extrapolate that to, to modern day. But his, his sort of whole insight um, was summarized in like a 36-page pamphlet. And I think you read most of that pamphlet, right? I read the whole thing, bro, and I hurt my balls to read it. Yeah, I got it with Mint, man. I got about halfway through it, and then I heard that you already read it, and then I had already read his book that came after, and the book that came after was so much easier to read than his his, uh, first pamphlet. So I'm interested to see what you got out of the pamphlet, because it was definitely one of the hardest things I've ever had to read. Dude, I was hoping to see what you got out of the pamphlet, because so... (laughs) I've got some notes on it. I do have notes on it. So... Um, we ha- the, so to state the name of the pamphlet because again this is there, there is nothing on this fucking guy like at all like I think this is gonna be the first YouTube video on the guy ever probably because yeah. there's literally <laughs> yeah. nothing. If, on if there's him. any more videos on Benjamin Paul Blood, then we were kind of the trailblazers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so let me let me give a little bit of context about the man who he was a little bit. He was born in 1832 in America. You know, you know, American through and through, and a lot of the analogies in his book really exemplify that. But he, uh, he's born in 1932 in Amsterdam, New York, and he basically lives his entire life there in the same spot for 86 years. Um, and he made some of his money on some patents that he had done. I think his dad had owned some land in the area. 70 acres, yeah. Uh, in a place called in a town called Florida in New York, which I didn't know there was a town called Florida, but his his dad owned a whole bunch of land in this place called Florida. But anyways, um, he was able to basically just like ride out his life and live in this little community for most of his life. And the thing that he loved the most was writing about all sorts of topics, but it, it amounted to like philosophy. He and was he a philosopher, bro. He was an American philosopher. Absolutely, yeah, unsung philosopher. A- absolutely. Um, but he's, he would write into, what is this, the, the Amsterdam Gazette, the Amsterdam Recorder, the Utica Herald, the Albany Times, the Atlantic. He would just write into these places like someone would go into a Reddit, subreddit, and just like post, you know, their rantings essentially, just hoping that anyone might listen to it. So he was that guy at home, you know, writing out these long, long letters and sending them out to anyone that wanted to read them. And at some point, he gets published in the Atlantic, and that attracts the attention of you know, real, quote-unquote, real philosophers that had credentials all over the world. And all of a sudden, this is where he started to make maybe not a name for himself because nobody knows who he is anymore, but he definitely started to make an impression on people and brought together sort of this community of philosophers and dentists <laughs> or people that were experimenting with ether and nitrous at the time. Um, and they, they kind of, like, put together their, their notes, essentially. And I think it's a fairly important milestone that has completely gone overlooked. So, because you read his second book, which... We have more, I think more than one book. I read a book called The Pluriverse. And The Pluriverse was him reflecting on this pamphlet that he had written and all the correspondences that he had It was published after he died, though, right? Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. That's what I said on the Wikipedia okay. page when I had looked it up. It said that it was post, post, uh, th- thumius or how to say how do they say it? Posthumously. 
post posthumously. Homerously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand. And I think that actually makes sense because towards the very end of the book, he mentions something about uh, like accepting his fate. And, you know, he's he's lived on this uh, world long enough and he was happy to have seen the show. That was part of that quote. We'll, we'll get to that because I think I've highlighted some of his really good quotes. I wanted to get your opinion on because I read the I read the entire pamphlet. Right, it's about forty pages long. So to be he, clear, he, I did read it, but I feel like my eyes glossed over a few times, and I just had to power through it, knowing that I was almost just staring at words more than reading them. Bro, are we looking at ramblings of some dude high as fuck <laughs> on nitrous? That's what I want to know. Like that's my whole thing here. Uh, no, I definitely don't think that the writing itself was him high on nitrous. In fact, he makes a really good, he makes a very strong point, um, that I might, maybe I'll get into it earlier than later, that the sensation comes while you're in this state where you're unable to communicate it or write it down or just effectively communicate it to anyone else. He mentions it almost as, as like there's reality and there's sanity and that you can't see true reality <laughs> while you're embracing sanity. And you have to lose your sanity to see reality. And that it's like this eternal struggle. That you'll you'll never be able to capture reality and then bring it back into the world of reason and logic. Uh, because it, it kind of exists outside of that or encompasses it. So And that, that sounds like a whole bunch of, of words that don't mean a whole lot yet. But he definitely expands on it some more. I want to look up what Novocaine, because Novocaine, have you taken, all right, so I don't know if you want to tell the listeners what you did, but I've never, I'm sure I've taken some sort of anesthetic, maybe it was nitrous. I've been to the dentist before I had my my wisdom teeth pulled. You have, have laughing gas where they put the little mask on you and say, you know, breathe in. But I went under. Is that what that is? If if you have enough, um, or they can they can add to it, but yeah, with enough of it, you can just kind of pass out and go into la la land and come back out later. Well, anyways, I mean, I know I was put under. I don't know if it was anesthesia, but if this is considered an anesthetic, so know, so anesthesia technically comes from a word I believe from like one of Plato's old books, but it really just means the inhibition of the senses. So that's all anesthesia is. It's a very broad term. Let's so look if it, it, up. if it on. inhibits fucking... your senses at all, then it's an anesthetic. We have the, the power of a supercomputer in front of us. Here we are <laughs> rambling like two fucking apes. Like, what does anesthesia mean? Well, I think it means da-da-da. Anesthetic or anis... anesthetic. American it, English it's a huge British. category because it can encompass nitrous and ether and opium and acupunctures, technically an anesthetic. Okay, so, so there's it's general... It's a very big category. There's general which results in a reversible loss of consciousness and a local anesthetic, which causes a reversible loss of sensation for a limited region of the body without necessarily affecting consciousness. So, okay, so you can either And neither of us it. are doctors, so we might get some of this wrong. Yeah, so well, fuck you guys if you're judging us right now. But, but yeah, so I mean, if you go to the dentist and they inject Novocaine by your tooth or in your gums so that you can't feel it as they're pulling it out, but you're not losing consciousness that would be a local anesthetic because it's affecting this local area around mm -hmm. your tooth. But mm -hmm. a general anesthetic just puts you as a person out of it. So I believe that would encompass nitrous oxide because nitrous, you're not just pointing at a tooth. You know, that's affecting your entire body. Your entire system, yeah. It's morphine. We got we got fentanyl. We got morphine. We got a couple oxycodone. All uh, opiates. Anything that's derived from opium. 
Yeah, we got these are intravenous, so they go into your bloodstream. Opioid analgestic agents. So we have here, then we have intravenous non-opioid. There is a non-opioid section as well, which I don't know how to say any of these. There's ketamine in there, which I know that that's also used sometimes in some of these uh, psychedelic trips, if you will. Because my whole thing is, bro. Okay, so inhaled agents. So nitrous oxide is under inhaled agents. There's three different types of general anesthetics, and nitrous oxide is one of them. But my whole thing is, do you remember what happens to you? That's my whole thing because, you know, have you ever microdosed, bro? Because I've been thinking about microdosing for a while now. I know uh, people. No comment. Come on, dude. It doesn't matter. We're not going to be judged <laughs> no, by no what we Okay. Anyways, whatever. Uh, but the whole thing is like, do you remember if after you come back or not? Because this dude's obviously writing about it and he feels like he's made some crazy revelation and he is talking about the literal fab, the fabric of your reality and being. You know, he's talk he's going on some deep philosophical shit. Let me let me uh, skip forward a little bit to the end of his his book. And again, the book is the Pluriverse. Or no, I'm sorry. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to skip to the end of the pamphlet because at the end of the pamphlet named The Anesthetic Revelation and the Gist the Philosophy, he has a section that's just titled The Anesthetic Revelation. Mm -hmm. And I think he explain he completely summarizes and answers this question. So let's answer this question first and then get more into the weeds a little bit. Okay. So um, I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole entire pamphlet. I'm just going to read this one summary at the end where he describes, he's trying to say, you know, at the end of this, here's what I'm talking about. So by the anesthetic revelation, I mean a certain survived condition in which the satisfaction of philosophy by appreciation of the genius of being, which appreciation cannot be brought out of that condition into the normal sanity of sense. So let me just rewind that back again. He's basically answering you right now. Like, no, like you, you appreciate it while you're in this inebriated state, but mm. then once you venture back out into what he calls sanity, you sort of lose this information that was this huge revelation in, in just like this tiny little moment. So he says, um, of this condition, although it may ha might have be attained otherwise, I know only by the use of anesthetic agents. After experiments ranging over nearly 14 years, I affirm what any man may prove at will, that there's an invariable and reliable condition ensuing about the instant of a recall from an anesthetic stupor to a sensible observation of coming to, to which the genius is being revealed. What he's saying here is that it's almost like the self-evident, and I think he would relate this to like an intense you know, psychedelic trip where at the peak of it, you know, you're talking to God and like you understand the universe and of course we're all one and how do we never know that? And then you start coming back down and reality sets in and you lose touch with that. And, you know, some sometimes people are coming down and it's like, let's never forget that, you know, like we all know, right? Like right in this moment, we know that the universe is one and we're all connected. Let's never forget this, guys. And then, you know, like a year goes by or four months goes by and uh, you have a rough day and, you know, you just live through normal sanity, as this guy calls it. And all those revelations start to mean less and less and less. So I, I kind of think that that's what he's getting at is that, um, and, and again, this guy lived in a really strange world where he was able to just do nitrous experiments for 14 years straight and just write and read about philosophy. And he had the means to do it. Um, I don't know if there's anyone else that's ever kind of done that. He was almost like this 
this uh seventh or nineteenth century Timothy Leary in some ways. Yeah, but the fact that we don't under that we don't remember like this is the first time when you talked to me about him was the first time I had ever heard of this guy. And it is during a time right we're in the eighteen seventy four, this is around Nietzsche time, so people are trying to find, you know, talking about religion and all these things. God is dead. And I'm sure that they're being influenced by one another, right? Because that's one of the, the biggest things of the time where people thought when Nietzsche talked about God is dead that he was celebrating the death. But it's like, no, he's not. It's like, we don't want to live a nihilistic time. But this guy, so I've never he done He wasn't DMT. big into Nietzsche, I don't think. He was super big into Plato. Um, he was into Kant. He said Pythagoras, he, too. He was, yeah, he mentioned Pythagoras a couple times. And he was, like, head over heels in love with Hegel, which is one yeah. of the most complicated philosophy systems that I've even tried to understand, and I, I don't even come close. Yeah, um, that's but, why it was, like, so above my fucking pay grade when I was reading this stuff. And I'm like, what in the fuck is this guy going on about, about... Bro, like, my favorite one was, I think, is, like, we are nothing with no without knowledge. Like, we are dead without knowledge. <laughs> that, bro. So, so there's definitely an aspect of this that it's a dude that's been huffing nitrous for 14 years <laughs> and then wrote a manifesto about it. Um, like, let's let's not skip over that aspect because that's, that's the defining aspect here is this this guy, like, knew that he was probably going to seem a little bit crazy. So hold on. I've, I've got a... Uh... So what I wanted to say was... It's how you're talking about that. He, what he said there that you don't remember it unless you're in this state of mind. It reminds me of people who do DMT. I've never done DMT, but people who always do DMT, they talk about like, oh, I saw the the veil. I saw the dome. But then it's like, okay, well, describe it. Oh, I can't. It's like you saw this crazy shit. Well, this, is, then, this is like that ineffable name of God. It's like when you see God's face on this DMT trip. All right. You know, I'm sitting here with my sketchbook. Tell me what God looked like so I can draw it. It's almost <laughs> like that sort of situation where it's like, well, it was holographic and there was music involved. And I think like vibrations happened. And like, can you get all that? You know, and you're just sitting here with like a black and white pencil with white paper. And someone's talking about like a polytechnic vibrating universe as the face of God. So I think there's there's some element of that where um, just try and translate the experience directly into words. And at his time, you know, like sit down and, and write it all out long form and send it into newspapers. There was just going to be so much lost in translation there. But again, I think over 14 years, even if you only get to bring back a tiny little bit each time, if you do it for 14 years straight, all those tiny little bits add up to at least a pamphlet, apparently. You think that this guy was getting some brain damage? I'm reading right now on, on medicine. Nitrous oxide has been used in dentistry and surgery as an anesthetic and anal analgestic since 1844 and it was administered at the early days it was administered through simple inhalers consisting of a breathing bag made of rubber cloth and then now it's administered with how you're saying a nitrous oxide mixed with oxygen two to one ratio but then i'm thinking this dude was just sitting at his house with this fucking mask on laughing his ass off while he just cranked it all the way up just inhaling it, just sitting there, just going. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how he got his nitro source. Um, I don't know if he was making it at home or if he just got the hookup from the dentist or or what. Oh, like, check this had... out, bro! Check this out. I got some stuff here. Recreational use. 
recreational inhalation of nitrous oxide with the purpose of causing euphoria and and or slight hallucinations began as a phenomenon for the British upper class in 1799, known as laughing gas parties. It actually goes way before that. So I've I've really? got the research again. So I said the whole reason I know about Benjamin Paul Blood is because I started doing research into Adrenochrome, and we'll leave that for another episode. But I went down this crazy tangent on nitrous oxide. So really, the first guy that discovered nitrous oxide was a guy named Joseph Priestley in 1772. And I'm pre- I'm gonna get some of his the ages wrong maybe, but I think that he's essentially a college kid, right? Imagine you're in 1772, you're a college kid, you go to your dorm, and <laughs> You're literally like creating these different chemicals that no one has really experimented with before, filling up balloons and huffing them, and then getting lightheaded off some of them, and some might not do anything. Until um, you threw up after, like, you inhale this and you fucking so, just throw your brains out. Like, <laughs> so at some point, Joseph Priestley synthesizes nitrous oxide for the very first time. This is 1772, the first time on record. And the only footnote among all of his other works and discoveries um, was basically that. He discovered this nitrous oxide, but really he discovered oxygen. He discovered like the concepts of all these different types of what they used to just consider air. But through this, he realized that nitrous got you super, super stoned. Um, And then this led into all sorts of other experiments where he would literally create like an, an entire chamber and just sit in this chamber for three hours with nitrous just being pumped in. So this is not the same as going to the dentist and they dial you in and they do like a two to one ratio. Like these guys were going at it super hard and they were probably seeing, you know, the face of God in some instances. Um, and I, maybe they had some brain damage, but again, you know, Benjamin Paul blood that did this for 14 years plus, um, in the, in the 70 or in the 1800s, this dude lived until he was 86 and was, you know, pretty like with it all the way up until the very end. Did you, so I did you, catch on his biography on wikipedia though this stood out to me blood was known as an intelligent man but an unfocused one what does that mean am i an intelligent (laughs) man but unfocused the fuck does that even mean maybe i don't know man i mean i wasn't there to really to relate to him and know what he was focused based on his writings he was way more focused than i am so that kind of scares me a little bit if he's if he got lost in history, forgotten, and if you look him up now, it just says that he was an unfocused dude. Some dude that was just huffing, laughing gas for fun and trying to meet God through that. I mean, and, I don't and know. breaking down Hegel and breaking down Kant and Plato. But I, yeah. but I want to say that there's a, there's equal parts of things that I think it was just a product of his time. So he was regurgitating a lot of the philosophy of his period. But he was, again, he was so unique in pinpointing this this connection of, like, inebriation to philosophy, specifically to kind of, like, understanding, like, hey, again, like, we're all one, guys. If you just huff enough of this nitrous oxide, we all get really, really stoned, then, like, you'll see it, too. And he was able to get other scientists and philosophers all across the world to write in and be like, you know what, man, now that you mention it, last time I got my tooth pulled and I was coming out of it, I was like, yeah, I think I understand Plato now. And then it went away real quick. Uh, but he had enough people write in that had that exact same uh, experience that he was like, all right, I have to sit down and I have to write this pamphlet. And then that got enough traction that years and years go by, you know, like three or four decades. And he's like, okay, now I have to like 
rewrite this whole pamphlet and make sure that I can get all of my thoughts as clear as possible. Because I think in retrospect, he went back and read that pamphlet and he was like, yeah, I think I was a little bit too stoned when I was writing that one. So <laughs> let me, you know, let me go back and, and try to like fix that up a little bit. What do you think, bro? Because I know how you, how logical you can be and stuff. But do you think that we're able to unlock... I don't want to say magical powers because I, I got to be very careful when I bring this shit up with you. But do already you think a that no. Can... It's already a no. No, no, but listen to me. Do you think that there is something hibernating within us, like a higher – obviously, a high, there are different states of consciousness. We know this shit, right? We know that there are certain religions that literally will spin in circles for hours to <laughs> achieve different states of consciousness. Do the you whirling feel like... dervishes, yeah. Yeah, do you think that this is also has to do with that? Like it maybe unlocks a different. I mean, it's a hallucinogenic. I mean, you start tripping your balls off. So, do you think me, that has anything to do with it? Yeah, of course, it has. I think it has everything to do with it. To me, it's this element of a undeniable different mentality. Because there was so many people, especially you know, way back when, the only different states of mind you might be of is like healthy sick and drunk you know there was <laughs> there was not a lot of variety beyond those um so well, was and, this and, during the pro like when was the prohibition because i mean you can well, even like get the, drunk, the right? 1920s through like the this 1930s was the eight, or, or this is the late 1800s so you could yeah even you know drink. they had alcohol but again alcohol is not something that you drink a whole get a really drunk and you're like i can understand plato better than ever you know <laughs> like some people claim that they could drive better they can do things better but it's almost it's almost never true right almost nothing you do on unless it's like you had that one glass of wine that just like takes the edge off and then you can go and you know do something sure. that you wouldn't normally do but there's no sense of like once you get completely blasted, you see the face of God and math starts yeah. making sense and, you know, you're seeing through the matrix. But that does exist with, you know, these general anesthetics in some cases, uh, with hallucinogenics, with psychedelics, psychotropics. Um, so I think that the, the main, the core here, and we can go on to total different tangent on, like, the origin of religion and philosophy because I do think it, it kind of amounts to this, like, magic mushroom stoned ape sort of uh, event. But when we talk about the um, the nitrous oxide anesthetic revelation this guy was going through, I think it was just this undeniable thing. He was like, man, in normal life, when I'm not doing this nitrous that I've got this 14-year supply sitting next to me, when I'm not doing that, like I, I am in this very objective reality where everything makes sense. But when I go into this nitrous reality, specifically like right as I'm coming out of it, um, he just realized that it was like these two different dimensions. And I think that he really, truly was starting to I identify this, like, nitrous world with the true reality. And that when he came off of it, it was in this more limited, like, rational place where, like, everything has to make sense and there's, like, rules. But in nitrous world, you know, anything was possible. And I think that that's, you know, it's, it's very similar to, like, a, a kid today, you know, taking an acid trip for his first time in college. And he's like, oh, man, now I understand everything, you know? <laughs> yeah, I just... This dude was on some shit, bro. Like, what he was talking about here. I'm trying to find a quote that I liked. You know, the one where it's like, we are, without knowledge, we're just, essentially, we're dead. And I'm like, damn. Well, let, let me pull like let me, me pull up a, a tiny little snippet. Because this was the review in The Atlantic that got him all this clout. And that had other people, you know, um, writing into him and projected him. Yeah, for anybody that, forgotten. that wants to read this, it's fucking hard to read. Like, it's really hard. It's It's... It kind of sucks. 
<laughs> I, I recommend the his second book, The Plurality, on this topic at least. But okay, so this is a review by William James, which ended up being one of his biggest supporters, and this is from the Atlantic. And uh, I'm just going to skip to the the part that I think makes the most sense here. It says, um, "Here stands Mister Blood, who, however, frees himself from philosophy only as many others have done by wading deeply through and thereby exposing himself to the scornful eyes of the sound-minded and practical crew." as one of the other visionary sort. More indeed than visionary, crack-brained, that will be the verdict of most readers, when they hear that he's found a mystical substitute for the answer which philosophy seeks. And that substitute is a sort of ontological intuition beyond the power of words to tell, which one experiences while taking nitrous oxide gas and other anesthetics. So the guy was like, in the review was saying, you know, sort of like, go ahead and clutch your pearls, this is not your your grandma's uh, sort of philosophy. This crack-brained, you know, lunatic out of Amsterdam, New York. He's huffing nitrous, and he's saying that whatever is like the goal of philosophy, that end result that everyone's working towards, he's already found it through nitrous oxide. He took a shortcut there, and that's kind of like the gist I think of his booklet is saying that um, this is like a shortcut into not understanding it, but understanding that it's there. Like for anyone that needs proof that philosophy is worth looking into and that there's like this whole other reality outside reality, that nitrous is like your shortcut there. That's kind of what I understand from his entire work. I think DMT is a better choice. If well, they didn't have it yet, man. <laughs> they, were, they were still figuring things out, you know what I mean? Because check this out, bro. I'm on the Wikipedia of nitrous oxide. It goes, exposure to nitrous oxide causes short-term decreases in mental performance, audiovisual ability, and manual dexterity. These effects, coupled with the induced spatial and temporal disorientation, could result in physical harm to the user from environmental hazards. So, yeah, it says you've fallen out a window because you got stoned <laughs> off like, nitrous. That's that, all that, that is. The dude that did salvia or some shit, he fucking yeah, jumped out yeah, a window. Yeah, fell out his window, yeah. Did he die? There's been people that have died on salvia. I don't know if that dude did. Fuck. DNA damage. Occupational exposure to ambient nitrous oxide has been associated with DNA damage due to interruptions in DNA synthesis. Wow, bro. And this so. is specifically, I think, um, a side effect of B12 deficiency. So if you do, like, you know, copious amounts of nitrous with no breaks in between it will eventually lead to all kinds of B12 deficiencies, which can lead to neurological damage. Uh, I've read some places where it can lead to issues in, like, the actual spinal cord um, or, like, affecting your vertebrae, so it can, like, screw your back up and lead to paralysis for some what people. What the fuck, but this, is, but this is not a side effect of nitrous. This is a side effect of B12 deficiency, which happens mm. with nitrous use if it's if it's Long-term exposure. May yeah, cause yeah. vitamin B12 deficiency, yeah. Yeah, there you go. And then almost all of the the negative side effects come from that, that uh, B12 deficiency. The other big things are if you're just huffing nitrous nonstop, then you're also just depriving your brain of oxygen, and that could probably <laughs> lead to you know brain cells dying. And this is why now the dentist will give you this ratio of oxygen to nitrous so that they're not cutting – they're not literally cutting oxygen off to your brain and causing brain cells to die. Um, versus in the 1920s and before, I was read I read some reports that initial nitrous oxide 
gave him like a hundred percent nitrous for amounts of time and then would like cut it off and let you get some oxygen again and then give you back to a hundred percent nitrous again so uh they definitely you know they they worked their way through it they call it medical practice because you know they're always practicing yeah that's fucked right like when i went to the doctor not too long ago was like medicine is not a hundred percent science you know practicing the practice of medicine i was like sign here if you're okay with i'm like what the fuck (laughs) i guess i'll sign it so i just signed away i'm like okay these guys put me on nitrous who the fuck knows but i think it's so interesting right the the topic of hallucinogenics not psychedelics so much because i mean i would consider myself a psycho even though i've only done mushrooms one time scared the shit out of me right because i saw baphomet and all that stuff but <laughs> I consider myself a psychonaut and I find it so interesting this aspect that we're able to alter our consciousness with the use of these substances, right? And just the whole point it you know, I think the whole point of everything is to stay within that prolonged state of consciousness, right? Like when you when you're peeking on mushrooms before you start feeling like shit after the fact, like you wanna stay in that state like relax or you know, super happy and euphoric and all this shit. And then what do once you, mean you feel, st- feel like shit afterwards? Because usually the, the come down, uh, I've heard of it called the weirds, and it's it's kind of like this this in between. weird, calm, chilling state. You know what I mean? Well, I've had you know people tell me that they get sick sometimes. You know, after on the, the way like, up, they maybe st- they have on, a on stomach ache. Yeah, like after the fact, they have a really? stomach. I didn't feel that, but. I've had some people tell me like they feel, you know, either a stomach ache or some shit or even before like you said some people mix it with lime or lemon to make it so they don't get a stomach ache all this shit but I mean I've had various uh, cuz I love talking about this sort of shit like DMT tr- I love hearing about people's trips cuz it's like it's it's fascinating to me like I saw this huge fucking blue guy in front of you know two pyramids like I had a friend of mine tell me some crazy fucking story when he was in Egypt with Graham Hancock and some dude gave him DMT and he did DMT in his hotel room for the first time ever and he was in fucking Cairo and he's like seeing all this crazy shit like looking out his window bro <laughs> he was probably ready, ready to write a pamphlet after that well he's yeah unfortunately he won't come on the podcast anymore but yeah I'm sure he's he's seen some shit bro he's he's one time he did this thing in South America where it was they did peyote and then they they snorted through the through the finger of a dead monk that was hollowed out they sniffed some i forgot the name of the psychedelic it's on one of my episodes like once upon a time like probably like episode 20 something i don't i don't know if i would go that far once someone rolled out the dead finger i I think i might sit that out (laughs) so they're like here is the dead the the finger of a dead monk like a mummified fucking dead finger that's hollowed out and everybody has to snort this fucking stuff and he said that when he took it, it was like taking he felt it was like a tw- uh, 12 gauge to the back of the fucking skull, like some crazy. I'm gonna find the episode. Dude. I gotta find the episode. This and definitely I'm gonna... sounds like some some pre-COVID uh, ritual. 100 percent pre-COVID. <laughs> <Let's> <laughs> share around this dead monk's uh, finger. Oh, there's a little High bit of booger on that. Get, Let me get that booger off there for you. My bad. Here High you on peyote, bro. High <laughs> on peyote. They're going through this south american town of indigenous people that like sell sell little knickknacks and stuff that they know that the people are high as shit when they're going through this fucking town and they're like hey look at the gringos the gringos are high as fuck right now when when i went to peru they had like 
You know, if if you would go to like a, a normal uh, city and they've got like the AAA and like the tourist places, they had those tourist places, but they were oriented to on going on these like shamanic trips and doing like yes. ayahuasca and everything. Mm -hmm. But it was funny because you know the guys would be out with like the brochures, like ayahuasca, ayahuasca. And I was just thinking, like, imagine someone you know on just a regular vacation, like they're not a psychonaut, they're just they're in Peru to just you know look at the sights and they get roped into like, oh honey. There's this indigenous guy that wants us to go and check out this this city called Ayahuasca. It sounds really cool, you know, like, hop in, let's go. Because they would just, essentially, you sign up, you give them 70 bucks, and then you go out into the middle of the jungle for 72 hours with them. And I'm just thinking, unless you, like, were planning on doing that, that's that's kind of a wild thing to get roped into. Like, hey, last minute, let's go do a 72-hour Ayahuasca no, trip, you know? fuck that. Hey, no, dude, that, that would be terrifying. But, um, so... Take that, right? You're talking about being in the middle. Let's say we're in the middle of the Amazon. You take that and you extrapolate it to the time of this guy, right? We have uh, the the guy you talked about, Sir Humphrey Davies. Did you mention him? He was yeah, yeah. So well, I, I haven't got to him yet. He come. He actually comes way later. There's like a long lineage until it gets to Sir Humphrey Davies. Well, what I meant is you have these shamans, right? Or these these indigenous people in the Amazon or in wherever trying to do the same thing. They're trying to chase that next high to meet their God or whatever it is. So they're experimenting with, you know, their plants and all this. Sh and the craziest part to me about DMT is, or ayahuasca is that, you know, this is the, the root, this is the, the leaf or whatever, you know, this is the plant. And if you mix the two together for X amount of time, you're able to get this brew. It's like, how are they, how many times did they kill themselves trying to find the correct dosage? before they actually came up with the correct you know what i mean like that's the wildest shit to me and if you ask a shaman they tell you like hey the plants told us what the fuck are you talking about bro like what are you saying that the plants told you to mix these two things <laughs> together and that you would get this psychedelic trip they're not they're not mentioned about like that trail of <laughs> dead bodies like that lining up to all the other plants on the way there well, I had a I had a podcast yesterday with the doctor the the ocular disease specialist and he was talking about how you know, for cataracts back then, they say that Jesus, you know, rubbed the, uh, you know, spit in the ground or something like that and, and rubbed the eye, you know, with a little bit of dirt. It was like, well, he was using an abrasive medium. And I go, you know, it's funny that in the Bible, they probably put all the good times that they didn't show Jesus' malpractice and all the cases against him of the people that he <laughs> tried to fucking heal. And, they, and it just went haywire. Like, yeah, he healed these two guys that one time, but there was like 25 other guys after those guys that it was just fucking <laughs> botched <laughs> surgeries or some crazy shit. You know, like they, botched They got miracles. lost in the footnotes of the Dead Sea Scrolls somewhere. <laughs> two bad guys. That's what I'm saying, bro. So uh, all the time that like you said that they drove people to insanity. If you can imagine like somebody drank too much ayahuasca, we're like, oh, I'm going to chug this shit down. And they were never to be seen again because they just fucking started wandering the Amazon, just tripping their balls off in this other never dimension. Never came back. And never came back. So, I don't know, dude. I just, I so love talking about this shit. We, we can go way deeper on, on psychedelics and hallucinogens. And especially because in my research, I really do think that the whole Western world, if you... Like like uh, magic mushrooms and DMT and adrenochrome, which is where this research kind of started for me. All these psychedelics all were starting to be experimented with around the same time in like the 50s. Everything before the 1950s and, and maybe uh, mescaline slightly before that. Uh, mescaline had been discovered and I think like Aleister Crowley had 
um, messed with mescaline in some capacities and some other like artists and writers. But before that, it was really just nitrous and ether for the Western world. For the rest, of, you know, for like South America and for Mexico and for indigenous areas, like they were already in on it. You know, they knew how to grow salvia and magic mushrooms and Aminita mascara and ayahuasca, and they they knew all of these different things. But the Europeans and the white guys and the Puritans that came over here, um, they didn't really get hip to any of this stuff until nitrous first kind of like squeeze its way in the door, and because it came from like you were mentioning before, high society, these rich, you know, British guys and these scientists and these actors and writers, they were saying like, hey, I did this nitrous and it made me really elevated and it was kind of became accepted and that's how it sort of became an anesthetic. Um, it didn't come from, you know, marijuana, from the people that, you know, they were like looking as immigrants and, and sort of like these barbarians. But there's also another really cool defining slight tangent here. You mentioned before, like, who are those guys that took it for the first time and all the, you know, the guys that tried like the poisonous versions and they the died. Oh, geez. <laughs> so the, this guy, Gordon Wasson, which another tangent is related to MK Ultra, the JFK assassination. He was like deep. He was um, a vice assistant or vice president to JP Morgan in the banking at some point. What and what fuck? a lot of people don't know is that JP Morgan and JP Morgan Jr. have a large collection of of psychedelic mushroom and like indigenous mushroom artwork from all over the world specifically really? mushrooms yeah specifically mushrooms which is which is interesting and this guy gordon wasson he walks away from his life as like a banker and he starts traveling the world he goes to india he goes to um siberia he goes you know all over the place mexico he's the one that brought the magic mushroom and showed it to henry luce of time magazine and was like, dude, check this thing out. This is going to blow your mind. And then it was in Time Magazine, and that's how the rest of the country even knows about it. He also discovered Salvia Divinorum. He discovered all sorts of psychedelics that everyone knows about today. None of that would be here, at least as soon as it was, um, through the same route, without this guy, Robert Gordon Wasson. And the, the interesting part here is that he was married to some lady from Russia or something. Butcher some of this part. But they were like out in New York somewhere going through like a forest and they came up on a field and there was a whole bunch of different mushrooms on the field. And his wife ran over to these mushrooms and started picking them and like eating them. And oh. he was going crazy because he was like, what the hell are you doing? You're going to die. You know what I mean? And she was trying to explain to him that in her town and where she grew up outside of the United States, they had like 70 words for mushrooms and she could identify all the edible ones and all the poisonous ones. And Robert Gordon Watson at the time realized that in English, in America at that moment, they only had like 10 or, or less words for mushrooms. It was like nightshade was one, like, and a majority of them were meant to be poisonous. Nightshade and like death caps and all these <laughs> things. Um, so he went on this worldwide search and was like, why do we have so little words for mushroom? And that's an oversimplification of like, why are, are Americans so ignorant towards, you know, fungus? And went out across the world and found, you know, how it was used in all these different cultures. And he started putting these pieces together that maybe the Holy Eucharist was a mushroom. And maybe the the oh. mushroom that killed Buddha Fuck. was actually like a psychedelic mushroom that he didn't die, die. He had like an ego death. Um, so he starts yeah. putting these pieces together. And um, him and I think Albert Hubbard, who the guy that invented LSD, they worked together on a few books. The Road to It's not the Holy Demeter Mushroom and the and... Cross, is it? What's that dude's name? Uh, no, that's that's an that's John Allegro, I think. John Ale um, John Marco yeah. Allegro, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and he wrote, I mean, he wrote almost one of the most definitive books on it, but from my understanding, um, Gordon Wasson is the one that really brought the actual magic mushroom into the whole entire Western world so that we even know about it. Um, and I don't think he even did it before. I don't think he actually took any of the magic mushrooms. He was just, you know, very, very it's interested. It's like that in movie it. Altered States, right? That the where he's going around trying to find that that thing that really just well that was isol- I think it was like isolation tank that really put the guy over in altered states mm. and he reverts back to like a primordial like <laughs> caveman right and it's like Kundalini energy and he, type of shit right and there he, yeah and he breaks out of the isolation tank like you know Joe Rogan in the isolation tank and breaks out and um, breaks into the zoo and starts like eating zoo animals or something. Yeah, some crazy shit like that. But that's that's super interesting, bro. But that's what, like how you said, that's what paved the way for a lot of these guys. And even the use of quote-unquote psychedelics, it goes even back to unintentionally, if you will, back to the Salem Witch Trials, right? Because one of their main things was the whole ergot thing, the right? The Ergot, there was also detura. There was also mushrooms that belonged to... Uh to some other families might have been amanita muscara could have been some some other ones like pan pantherion caps or something like that Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean they would cause people to think they were flying um see visions uh on top of just like the general like we we covered the crowd in the last one right so yeah the other part of that you know witchcraft trials was hyping up the crowd and getting them all whipped up into a frenzy too yeah yeah exactly but i mean just to the the effects, and I'm sure it goes even, it's even to, to caveman times where there's pictures of, or like the mushroom man or the bee man or some shit like that, where it's, it looks like a man made out of mushrooms, and that's the whole Stone Date theory. But yeah, so anyways, back to this. I don't know if you wanted to bring up some. So of let, the let's quotes. let's wrap up some notes on the pamphlet, the anesthetic revelation. Um. So I'm going to read another little quote from him where I think he's trying to be, he's trying to explain it the best he can, but he realizes that, that he's not doing a great job. I really, I kind of see that in here. And again, this is because it's from his original pamphlet. So he Which says page that, are you on so I can follow along? Uh, the, the hell of final man. It's, it's, uh, here, let's see. Uh, in the double up, it's page 39 in the double spread, but it's under the final summary chapter just called the anesthetic revelation the very back it's like the last three or four pages yeah so Um, so so again so he says i've spoken with various persons who also induce anesthesis professionally dentists surgeons etc who have observed that many patients at the moment of recall seem as having made a startling yet somehow matter of course or even grotesque discovery in their own nature and try to speak of it but invariably fail in a lost mood of introspection. So again, this is him saying like, I've talked to plenty of, you know, dentists and surgeons that have seen people going through this state, come to these, like, I've seen the face of God revelations. And when they try to say it, you know, it's like, what's the, the Davy at the dentist thing. It's just like, is this reality or whatever? So, Mm -hmm. you know, they can't form the words. And if you go on YouTube, it's some, it's actually kind of like a, a wholesome, funny thing to watch people coming off anesthesia. Um, some of them get like very crude. They'll start like you know catcalling the the nurses and stuff. Um, but it's this like complete lack of of um, you know it's like inhibiting the senses. Like you're just kind of like letting it all out, even though you're not aware of it. So he continues, of what astonishes them is that it's hard to give or receive intimation 
but I think most persons who shall have tested it will accept this as the central point of the illumination, that sanity is not the basic quality of intelligence, but is a mere condition which is variable, like the humming of a wheel goes up or down the musical gamut according to physical activity. So again, like, this feels like this little nugget that was buried in here that I that I, I had to dig out, you know, through like all this very baroque, verbose, um, like long-winded writing. But he's saying here that he doesn't see sanity as having to do with intelligence and that, if anything, losing a little bit of sanity gives you more insight and more introspection and that you can't take you can't take revelations in an insane world and bring them back into a sane world and expect it to translate it's it's really hard to put into words but i really do feel like uh i understand what he's saying here and, it, and it's not just you, the nitrous you talking. think so bro it's not you, just the nitrous you think he he has he's he's on yeah to something he, i mean there? he so he continues and he says only insanity is formal or contrasting thought while the naked life is realized only outside of sanity altogether. So he's saying here the naked life as in like the real real, um, but that you can't bring it back into sanity. And then he also says that it is this instant contrast of this tasteless water of souls. And that's a quote that he, he drops a few times. A tasteless water of souls with formal thought as we come to that leaves in the patient in an astonishment that the awful mystery of life is at last but a homely and common thing, and that aside from the mere formality, the majestic and the absurd are of equal dignity. And I want to I come back to this where he says that the awful mystery of life is at last a homely and a common thing. I think, to me, this means that he's been doing this for 14 years, and he knows that he's got this key, so it's like, it's not this mystery to him anymore because he's been tapping into this thing, you know, every day for for 365 days a year times 14 years. So it becomes less and less of this like grand mystery like, "Oh my god, I saw the face of God." After like 7 years, it's like, "Hey, God's me again." You know, <laughs> it's it's me, Ben. How's it going, bro? <laughs> like, I'm just walking through, you know me. I'm going to like grab a snack. I'll be out the back. This will be like a 15-minute thing, you know. Um, but he mentions it, and this is also Something that's really, really hard to convey un until you read some of this stuff. Um, specifically the older one, because the first one is almost impossible to get through. But he's got this very matter-of-fact way of speaking. Not a single time does he get into, like, mystical woo-woo of any kind. If anything, he starts harking back to, like, Plato and Hegel and Kant-style philosophy. But he never really gets into, like, mysticism or... Um, he's, he's very specific with his words and he always tries to tie it to philosophical concepts. He never really goes on like weird tangents about feelings and emotions. If anything, he, he intentionally steps away from that sort of, uh, um, descriptions. And he, he tried to do a thing that you like, uh, at, towards the beginning, not in the anesthetic revelation part of the, cause the first half is him trying to like explain the philo like philosophy of it's being. not an easy read yeah <laughs> it's not so he's like trying he's like you know a equals a but then when you look in the mirror and you see the reflection of something is it the real thing or is it something that exists outside so well, the, hold like, on. what but the fuck i've actually <laughs> i've got that part quoted because that's probably my my favorite analogy that was my favorite from, part too i'm like what do you, 
you yeah. have it up to I've, I've got just like the nugget here so well so i wanted you to finish up yeah, this yeah. part here because he gets into some shit here where he goes he he says it here nor can it be long until all who enter the anesthetic condition and there are hundreds every secular day will be taught to expect this revelation and will date from its experience their initiation into the secret of life <laughs> yeah. so what so <laughs> so so in in the second book, this wit makes a lot more sense, and he, he explains this in that people that don't know, like if you're going to the dentist and you've never heard about the the anesthetic revelation before, you're just gonna go to the dentist and get your tooth pulled. You go there, you get nitrous, you come out of it, woo woo. I feel you know kind of happy. I'm like laughing. That was an interesting experience, and then you go home. But if someone were to stop before you did that, and they were like, "Hey, bro, like right when you realize that you're coming down." You know, you can actually understand philosophy, and you Whoa, can, dude, you understand Thomas. that like we're all one. So he plants that seed. So then, when you actually start having that experience, you can see it because he he told you to look for it. But and here, that was here's that's the, the whole thing. point of him writing this. Is damn, that's fucking crazy, bro. Because is it a conscious thing though? Like if you you know what I mean? Like is it a thing that if you if you know you're looking for it, it's going to reveal itself. Or is it something that you just have to, you know what I mean? Like, is this what a lot of these secret societies are about? Like, if you know that it's there, it's going to show itself to you. He mentions the Illuminati by name in the second book a couple <laughs> and times. aliens and shit, too. He says so aliens. So he, he absolutely believes that this was an initiation into mystery school. The so he doesn't secret, say it in those exact words, but he's essentially saying, uh, and, and I do uh, believe that this kind of harkens back to the originating mystery schools where they were giving them ergot and they were tripping out and they were watching this huge play by the greatest you know theater producers of all time the ancient greeks with music and light shows and you know loud flashes of light and uh you know tripping off ergot so that would be this crazy you know, life-changing experience where you couldn't you know an undeniable experience with some other you know type of existence so and this guy had that same thing but through nitrous i wanted to, i want to pick up so i, I want to give context to that to that quote that i read there because it does relate and so it says here so picking up off the you have the water uh, of souls the astonishment mystery of life is at last but homely a common thing and that aside from mere formality the majestic and the absurd are equal of are of equal dignity so this next part is leads to that quote that we said, and I think it's important that we mention it because I think it's fucking mind blowing. The because see, I'm connecting dots with you that I wasn't connecting by myself. So it's like okay, it's good to have a fresh pair of eyes, especially when it comes to something so fucking convoluted like this guy was writing. He was on some shit. I think he I think he was high as fuck when he was writing this. I don't care what anybody says. And I, and so, I think he was trying to pump his word count a little bit too in places. Yeah, it's like fifty five. <laughs> I need at least fifty six pages. So we have here. The astonishment is aggravated as at aggravated as at a thing, of course, missed by sanity in overstepping, as in too foreign a search or with too eager an attention, as in finding one's spectacles on one's nose, or in making in the dark a step higher than the stair. My first experience of this revelation had many varieties of emotion. But as a man grows calm and determined by experience in general, so am I now not only firm and familiar in this once weird condition, but triumphant. Let me go to the next page. Divine. And here we go. This is where it gets like, what the fuck? 
To minds of sanguine imagination, there will be a sadness in the tenor of the mystery, as if the keynote of the universe were low. For no poetry, no emotion known to the normal sanity of man can furnish a hint of its prim primival, primival prestige and its all but appalling solemnity. But for such as have felt sadly the instability of temporal things, there is a comfort of serenity and ancient peace, while for the resolved and imperious spirit there are majesty and super supremacy unspeakable. Fuck, bro. You see how this guy's like... He went to the Akashic <laughs> Records on that one. He checked out a book from the library. Seriously. <laughs> so, dude, like, that is... But what tripped me when you were talking about this shit so here men and brethren into this pervading genius we pass forgetting and forgotten and thenceforth each all is all in god there is no higher no deeper no other than the life in which we are founded and the one remains the many changes and past and i'm trying to find the part here where he talks about being god <laughs> did you <laughs> did, did you pick up did you pick up on that I didn't pick up on him saying that that he was God. No. Yeah, it's like we are one. Here goes. So my father and I are one. More not for the dead who have awoken in the bosom of God. They care not. They think not. Let me find it. It was in. I so think it was in so to give some context part. here, he he wrote his experiences, but he also wrote stories and he also wrote a lot of poetry. So a lot of the book and the pamphlet will go in and out of him uh, speaking prose to the reader, to like going back into poetry and then mm -hmm. back into prose. So we have here, this world is no more that alien terror which was taught me. <laughs> <laughs> the alien terror, yeah. In the second book, he's got way more quotes. So let's let's start working our way towards the, the book, which came, uh, let's see. So 1832. Oh, hold on, bro. Before, before okay, we go, go I found that part. So heed not for themselves the voice nor the hand, which ever deny themselves. Remember only how many inspired times it is spoken and written. I am. That God whom faltering spirits seek in far off courts of heaven, while behold, the kingdom of God is neither low here nor low there, but within you. It is the soul. So, he, bro, he's talking about thou shalt vanish, but the soul is eternal. I speak not of souls, and behold, I say unto you, the supreme genius. But he's going on some shit where I was like, what in the fuck? Are you well, he, talking he about? He starts going in this one, um, it's less direct. In the second book, it's a little bit more direct. Mm. Of Plato had, uh, I don't remember the names of all this because I wasn't, I didn't do all my philosophy studying before this. But Plato had this concept of, of being versus sameness versus difference. And that these oh. were like the three eternal states of anything. And that the soul was the, the intersection of these three things of being, sameness, and difference. And uh, Paul so it's like a Vesica Pisces type of thing, yeah. where it's like you're and, in the yeah, center so it's of like all a, three. Yeah, it's it's like a, a cross diagram, um, and it makes so, sense because if you think about the Platonists, right? The Platonists uh, and the Neoplatonists. It, we, so, so you have the Pythagoreans, the Neopythagoreans, Platonists, Neoplatonists, and then you have Christianity. So it would make sense that these guys paved the way for what the holy trinity is if you really think about it you know it's like these the three but the three form one right remember we were talking about the trinity and like understanding and all this shit so it would make sense that he's like you know in the center of all that 
they're emanationists. They grab the good parts and they're like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, they're emanationists. So they believe in that one source in the center, and then from there, reality emanates out. So it would make a lot of sense. But he he goes on a lot about the the difference between um, sameness and difference, and maybe a little bit into like Nietzsche, where he's talking about like the positive and negative, but it seems like he doesn't agree. Um, not necessarily with Nietzsche, but with this concept of like complete polarism that in order for goodness to exist, you have to have badness um, mm-hmm. and that in order for that, that's a bad example because he's a little bit more specific. He mentions that like in order to have creation and production, it doesn't mean there has to be negation or destruction. Um, he he puts it in a much better way that we're, we'll get into here. So let me. Yeah, we're just fucking monkeys. So so let me let me just uh, recap on his timeline here because it, it makes a little bit more sense on how old he was because again he wasn't like a, a high schooler or a, a college kid going into this he was like a full grown adult man and then became like an old man and was like still on this exact same topic until he basically died so 1832 he's born 1860 is when he has his tooth pulled out so what's that 28 he's about 30 years old and he has his first experience. It takes him 14 years after that. So now he's like 40-something. And then he writes the pamphlet about it. And then 40 years after that, (laughs) he writes this uh, book, The Pluriverse. So he's an 80-year-old man. He's looking back at his life. And it's not obvious in here if he's still been doing nitrous this entire time from, you know, age 28 all the way through age 80. But it seems like he is. um, But he's probably getting less... less, I guess revelations out of it than he did on that that first fourteen Shit, year. I would get uh, tired of it too. I'm spike. surprised he yeah. didn't try anything else. <laughs> so so let's see. So in in 1920 he writes the pluriverse, and I want to read just a, a the very top bit of the uh, the forward because this guy puts it into perspective and he's writing it like right towards the the age where blood ends up dying. So the author's forward says it was in the year 1860. That there came to me through the necessary use of anesthetics a revelation or insight of the immemorial mystery which among enlightened peoples still persists as the philosophical secret or problem of the world. It's an illumination of the cosmic center in which that field of thought which haunts the topics of fate, origin, reason, and divinity glows for the moment in an, in, in an inevitable but hardly communicable appreciation of the genius of being. So there's that inevitable but hardly communicable, like, you're going to see it, you're going to see God, but you're not going to be able to tell me what his name was because it's ineffable. It's like, it's too much to put into words. Words are too limiting to explain this experience. Um, so, he, so he goes on and says, um, it is an initiation, historically realized as such, into the oldest and the most intimate and ultimate truth. Whoever attains and remembers it or remembers of it is graduated beyond instruction in spiritual things. So this is the dude saying that if you can figure out how to get to that other world and pay attention long enough to remember it and bring it back into this world, you have reached some level of spiritual enlightenment. Like you, you, you've passed initiation and now you're like first degree, you know, like cosmic Mason or whatever the hell, whatever the hell that like that ultimate, um, you know, secret society of like, and he, he mentions Illuminati. So let me continue here because I, I love this because it blows my mind. 
but it, so he's calling this an initiation, nitrous. He's calling nitrous initiation. But to those who are philosophically given, it will recur as a condition which, if we are to retain a faith and reason, should seem amenable to articulate expression, for it is obvious what philosophers fail of. So again, he's like saying that if you don't understand philosophy, go do some nitrous. Um, and if you can retain that, you'll understand it. And you don't have to read all these guys, you know, long books and novels on things. At least it'll it'll get your foot in the door. And then you'll be like, okay, now I get what they're all talking about. Now maybe if I read it, like I'll start to see my experience through all this philosophy. But all these countless, you know, words and pages, they amount to nothing without this divine experience. What, again, he's mentioning as this initiation, this... uh inevitable but hardly communicable appreciation of the genius of being i don't know how else better to describe you know like a, a truly religious or psychedelic experience and you try to explain it to someone else that's exactly how i would explain it well and, and is that the is that the quote where he says and once you're able to see it you have become part of the illuminati like <laughs> we'll get there well and just to be clear, I don't think he was talking specifically about Bavarian Illuminati. Yeah, He's talking about the word. an illuminated one. Yeah. Yes. The, the, the word itself, not the group. I'm curious. Are you going to tell us about the research that you conducted, bro? And so when I was much, much younger, I I did experiment with a decent amount of nitrous. Um, but I don't think I got any sort of philosophical revelations out of any of it because no one told me. I didn't read Blood. You know, you he didn't, didn't have exist the key. at that point. If someone had told me, hey, before before you go through 144 canisters of uh, that nitrous that you ordered off Amazon and that punching <laughs> balloon, you're going to see the face of God and uh, go ahead and sketch that out and bring it back with you. Because if you do that, you get to the second level. It makes it makes your voice deep, right? The the nitrous? Yeah. So yeah, I think it, it like loosens your vocal cords so that they, they vibrate even slower. Here's the thing, bro. You know, because you, we talked about Plato and all this stuff, right? We have the idea. I think the missing link is language, because Plato said that if you, even if you name God by you naming God by you putting this limit and even just describing this thing, you're already automatically limiting it. So you by calling it God, boom, you've already put a cap on it because it is infinite. Everything is infinite. And by you naming it automatically, you limit it already. So the thing that you're trying to get at, bro, where you're, you see the face of God and you have this revelation and you try to bring it back, I don't think we have the language to be able to even do that. I mean, we don't even have the language to be able to describe a DMT. It's like, oh, well, I just Not saw a bunch insanity. of... That's, and that's what he's saying. You can't bring that back into sanity where language and logic and you know, like standards uh, exist. You can't bring what it back the with you. Fuck? That's and wild, so, bro. So I, I got a, a conspiracy tangent because ultimately this is also, you know, You're conspiracy crowd conspiracies. So I noticed that every time I'm going through a book and there's like a foreword or someone, you know, has like a, a quote on it, I look up, you know, who is that guy? Like the who's person, this guy yeah. writing the foreword, you know? Was he a friend or was he like a scientist? So Was he a Freemason, Thomas? So the, the pretty much always yes, especially if it's before 1900. The, almost always the answer is yes. So I w went down these tangents, they kept going and then I, uh, eventually I decided like I got to get back to the book and like read the rest of the book and stop going on these tangents. But these are footnotes of things that that maybe we'll get into later on future episodes. So first of all, the introduction to the Pluriverse 
by Benjamin Paul Blood. The introduction was written by a guy named Horace Meyer Callan, who was what born in 1882. Callan was hired directly out of Harvard by Woodrow Wilson, who was the president. Not not at this point, but Woodrow Wilson, the president. And Horace Meyer Callan was the first Jew ever to teach at Princeton, although he didn't get his contract renewed, and he I think he bumped back around some places. Um, but this guy writing the foreword was member of the American Philosophical Society, the Western Philosophical Society, the Society for Psychical Research, the League of Nations, the Palestine Development Council, the Zionist Organization of America. You could just keep listing like the he was, you know, personally hired by Woodrow Wilson, the guy that was responsible for signing the Federal Reserve into act. So anyways, that was like mind blowing. Like, OK, so the guy writing the forward to this book about, um, you know, Benjamin Paul Blood that never no one's ever really heard of. He doesn't have any search results anywhere. But the forward was written by this guy that worked directly with the president. Um, and then he also mentions some really good points here. So I'm not going to read direct quotes right out of the book. I love the, the Nicholas Cage just popped up over your shoulder. Thanks, bro. I'm not going to read direct um, like pages. I just got some like really nice tidbits here. And these mostly are from the forward still. So one of the things that Horace Meyer Callan observes here is that mainstream medieval Europe philosophy did not have a lot of variation to it. Like today we take for granted all the different philosophies and like life philosophies you can follow. Um, and there's just like this large swath to, to kind of choose from. But if you're in medieval Europe, your exposure to the world is almost limited exclusively to like the Catholic church or maybe some like folk traditions. And there's this point that the ultimate pinnacle of medieval philosophy was just balance. It was just tranquility and serenity. And that was it. So if you were of like sound mind and you could just kind of like coast and you had even temperament, so you weren't like constantly laughing or in ecstasy, but you also weren't constantly depressed or in melancholy, then essentially you had this philosophical balance to you. And I think what's interesting is, is what Paul Blood gets into is that, no, like there is this like ecstasy, this, this aspect of, he mentions it when you find the glasses at the end of your nose. When he said that, right, it seems like, why is he even saying that? He also has this analogy of a dog chasing its tail. And the best way I can describe this is that the dog chasing its tail is like a human searching for knowledge and philosophy. And it's like the dog chasing the tail, he's there to like get the rush of catching this thing. The thing is him. You know what I mean? You like can't ever he might not to. realize it, but he's trying to catch himself and you can't catch yourself because the act of catching yourself ends the chase of you, which defeats the purpose of it even happening. So he relates this to like man's philosophical search for a reason that that philosophy itself is what makes you want to learn more. Mm. And philosophy is also the tool which you use to learn more, but that you can never like finish. You can't like get to the end of that cycle because every time you learn a little bit of something, you learn how much you don't know and you want to learn even more. So it's literally, you know, humans trying to figure out the nature of things and philosophy he relates to this dog chasing its tail, like this Ouroboros that'll it'll never happen. It's like this this infinite cycle. He calls he calls philosophy the truth, right? At the beginning of the book, let me find the the. Quote. You're, you're talking about the pamphlet, right? Yeah, the pamphlet. But it, it, what you got is from the book. I'm bouncing around a little bit because again, the book is just like a, an elaborate version of the pamphlet. 
Mm, yeah, he went more into, and I think it was actually an essay, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so here, let me, I've got a quote from the pamphlet on the truth. So he says that there's this oddity in questioning what truth is, and especially in questioning, in questioning whether or not it is. And that who be speaks of or writes thereof must honor be presuming its possession. So he's basically saying that if you're saying something's true or untrue, then you're also declaring that, you know, you, you're an authority on the subject and that you know what truth is. Um, and I think he's not meaning this in like a conversational matter, but in like a, a more philosophical. Like if you claim to know what the philosophical truth is or if you claim that you know what it's not. Um, to almost be suspicious because you would have to know what the truth is to even make either of those statements. Mm, yeah, and so he, that's, that's what they say with be be weary of uh, uh, something, something, knowledge. Fuck, I forgot the... I think that's the exact wisdom. quote, actually. That's the exact quote. No, yeah, no, uh, be be weary of unearned wisdom. Like people who who are, you know, they talk about how how they're so enlightened and they don't really have much to prove. That's why, bro. Like, you know, not to throw any shit at anybody, but people who offer like self help to different people, but they really ha kind of have nothing. Like me, for example, me, I take advice from people who are in a better position than me in life, versus some, you know, some person that like whatever the situation maybe is like offering this self help. Uh, program for like x amount of money you know what's what i mean a, like what's a like, better position in life damn bro because <laughs> when you say that my mind goes right to diogenes in the in the city square <laughs> shitting on himself and and stealing food off people's plates and what acting like i a dog. perceive as a better position in life. <laughs> okay. there you go there i said it where i can't that's too that's you know it it, it guards me bro if you want to get all philosophical and shit so, but yeah, so, uh, continue. so let me let me finish what he's talking about truth here, because he, he makes a distinction by saying that philosophy is different from the quest of knowledge in that philosophy proceeds from a question of the possibility and reality of knowledge and it doubts of an answer in words to a question of things. So this is again like he's mentioning the philosophy. And if we get into the whole trivium, quadrivium, seven liberal arts thing, um, knowledge comes way way before philosophy knowledge comes in the trivium this is the aggregation of data applying logic to it understanding the grammar understanding how to decipher the rhetoric and put context in it so that's all knowledge you can't even get to philosophy until you've already understood how knowledge operates so he's mentioning philosophy is the study of knowledge itself and if it exists and how it exists and you know where it came from um so again like I think it's interesting because he's never at any point claims to understand or explain like what the answer is. He keeps hearkening back many, many times to like, and remember guys, I'm just saying that if you take nitrous, <laughs> like you'll understand what I'm getting. Like I'm giving you the map. I'm telling you about this other dimension in these philosophies. Although I, I have to admit that if this guy came up and gave me this pamphlet right before I went to the dentist office and I gave it a read over, I don't, I don't think I would, you know, understand what he was saying unless I knew ahead of time, like, okay, you know, this guy's on some shit. <laughs> He's going to be talking some shit. Um, this but is if what I to pay attention. <laughs> so, so he, so he keeps going like onto like more and more analogies, but there was one that you mentioned earlier that I want to, I want to 
Can repeat I read it? in full because it was my favorite, and it's Can the I... picture of a room and a mirror analogy. Before and you again, get I to think that... he's. What's up? Before you get to that, can I can I read something about knowledge? Oh yeah, yeah on knowledge. So I'm gonna try and read this because like reading a lot of this stuff in this in this pamphlet and the and the thing that you're about to read too. Like when I was, I'd read more, was... but it's hard, man. It's like a tongue twister. <laughs> so here go here goes nothing. So don't judge me if I fuck <laughs> it up. But observe, if being is by knowledge or through knowledge, surely it is not as knowledge. For thus were two words, being and knowledge. For one meaning, or if knowledge is the act of being, and is means knows, knowledge is distinguished from being as process is distinguished from substance. And I read that word for fucking word, by the way. Like, that, I was not making that up. Here it goes. And note the practical consequence of saying that being is only by and in knowledge. This would affirm of us that we are dead and nothing if without knowledge. Whereas we sleep in safety and in due time life or all that we mean by life, resumes consciousness, and we awake by a potency prior to our knowledge and will. So, again, here we go. All, or all that we, we mean by life. He even talks about Descartes, too. Like, you know, what is, what is I? And I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck, bro? What do you want? <laughs> well, it's a hodgepodge of all the different philosophy that he's been reading in his little shack in, uh, in Amsterdam for his entire life. And all these words are just swirling around. So I feel like, like this is the input. Like the, these are the words that he knows, these are the concepts that he knows. So almost everything that he writes at this point comes back through these, these like very deep philosophical mantras that I'm not very familiar with, but I could sort of pick them out. But I feel like if if me and you knew Immanuel Kant and we read mm -hmm. Hegel and we knew it by the back of our hand, we'd probably be like, okay, he's picking this off of this book, and he took that part out of here like he just kind of mashed them together i don't personally i mean it, a lot of it goes over my head but i really do think that the importance of blood here is the connection he's making from this different state that you can repeatedly get back to this other state you know you can take anesthetics to get to this other dimension and bring knowledge back that's that's the nugget that he just like keeps you know circling around and around and throwing all sorts of philosophy at it, but that's the thing that he kind of brought to the table. It's just it's as simple as just getting a tank full of nitrous oxide and putting on a mask. And I guess what do you do? You open it up all the way. Do you? If like... you want to do the seventeen seventies approach, you basically let it leak out. You cover your room in plastic, which is definitely a suffocation hazard. So you'd need to have like a sitter to make sure that after you've been in here long enough, you like <laughs> get out and don't kill yourself by just suffocating with no oxygen. But yeah, you just let it leak out and sit in there for three hours or so until you start, you know, coming up with revelations. Get the fuck out of here, bro. It's like the, the Oracle of Delphi with the, with the that's gases. Exa that's exactly it. I mean, it was a different chemical, um, but a lot of people were, were comparing nitrous oxide and ether um, to the same sort of experience that maybe the Oracle at Delphi had, this this gas that would yeah, you just know, sitting on top of a you... crack under under <laughs> a mountain next to a volcano, and you're just like, hmm, give me one second. Have you are you seeing anything? No, motherfucker, hold on. Like, <laughs> all right, now I see it. Yeah, uh, no, tomorrow it's gonna it's gonna rain, and then you got to go sacrifice those goats to uh, who? Moloch? Yeah, no, Bartzabel? No, no, the other one, the other. <laughs> all these fucking gods and shit oh my gosh yeah so go ahead with the with the, the mirror the, thing the picture that... of the room analogy 
And in my notes, I even wrote sloppy because I really, as I read this, I felt that I read the book first, the pluriverse, and then I went back and I read the pamphlet and just compared to the analogies that he's got in the book to this pamphlet, this felt like such a sloppy analogy. Like he definitely improved over the 40 years or so between the pamphlet and the book in, in expressing his thoughts. So I'm, I'll read this analogy and maybe I'll skip ahead to like one of the, the later ones to just give a, an A and B comparison of like how further he kind of advanced <laughs> through, you know, 40 more years of huffing nitrous. So his analogy of the picture in the room, which is not that mind blowing, but might have been for the time. And he says that when we sensibly see the image or picture of our room in a mirror and rationally conclude that no room is there as it appears, reason assumes a deception of sense. But there is then somewhat worthy of her remark, no matter whether characterized as an act, a fact, or a falsity, she confesses the thusness, even in, de even in denying um, of the illusion, and although affirming that the illusion is no outward in matter, but is an error in one side of the mind, affirming that it is not there, whether seen or not, but only as seen, and that there is no unseen color nor unfelt pain, and that these seeming realities are mistakes, which but for sense were not, yet this denial of any supposed substance in the illusion does not wipe out the fact of the illusion. A lot of words, a little bit sloppy, but he's saying you walk by a mirror and you see a room in the mirror, you know that that room in the mirror is not like its own room, it's just a reflection of the room that you're in, that's the real one, but they have this sameness. And again, this is going back to like these platonic sameness and difference and being, but he's saying that the reflection of the room and the actual room share this, this concept, this characteristic of sameness. And therefore they are two distinct things. Like they are both rooms. It's just that one is an illusion that is only a room because you have senses to observe it. And the other one is an actual objective room, but that the illusion even knowing that it's an illusion doesn't make that reflection not a room, it's, which is a little bit hard to... And inception. I, and, yeah, it's, it's a very Inception kind of thing. And then again, in, in the 1874, this was probably a little bit more mind-blowing than in 2022 when, you know, what you've fuck, seen what this... Are you, what are you talking about? It blows my fucking mind, dude. <laughs> okay. What are you saying? I, I, like, I, I want to add to that because we have here another one. We have... Yeah, and note further the consequence of saying all is only as it appears. The, did you read this? The color and form of the flowers seen in the mirror are as real as color and form can be. And all that we see in any flower is of color and form. Yet the object in the mirror is not taken for a real double, uh, of which the color and form belong to it behind them, nor supposed to possess that life of the banquet before the mirror. That life which we are and try to know yet further if we shall admit the demonstration of physical science that vision as well as sound and touch is meditate medit mediate is mediate and the eyes the eye takes time to see as well as the ear to hear then a star may have been so far away that if it had perished before the days of adam it might still be visible from here yet a hundred years surely what is now seen is not the being of the star for here is an appearance to which no outward reality belongs. So, again, this is him saying don't trust your senses, that the senses Descartes. belong to the world of sanity, and that the, the real real is, what did he call it, the, the naked realism or the naked realness is in this land of insanity. 
Yes, yeah, and again, back to Descartes. You know, I think, therefore, I am. He talks about the, you know, not, not this guy, but Descartes talks about an evil demon, which is inspired by the demiurge of Plato. Because, again, these guys were all, it's funny because the Descartes story is he was trying to defend his faith, but then he just unlocked, like, this crazy philosophical movement. And he just, like, <laughs> <laughs> opened up a can of worms. And it's like, wait a minute, what? You know, like, what am I doing? But, again, back to the whole uh not everything is, you know, it is not taken for a real double, which the color and form. Damn, bro. Like, that is. Reading this, I'm like, okay, dude's obviously on some shit. Like, I was trying to comprehend a lot of the stuff that he was saying, how you're saying he was, has these little stories and these little analogies. Because, again, he is a philosopher, so he understands it. And if you're able to understand Kant and all these other guys, which I've heard them before. I never looked into their, their work, but he even brings forth here a... Hey, Javi, I'm on a podcast, please. <laughs> okay, Baba, close the door. Yeah, thank you. Close the door, please. Okay. There you go. Let's write the timestamp down. 1-23-07. I might, I might just keep that. That's real life, ladies and gentlemen. That's, that's, that's real shit right there. You know, we have, you know, we're, we're trying to unlock the, the keys to the universe. We got toddlers. We're, we're trying to unlock doors here. We got toddlers <laughs> unlocking doors. <laughs> he says, let's go for a walk, Dad. I'm like, okay, buddy. Well, I want to yeah. put a cap on this because I want to fully move to the Pluriverse analogies because this can't be like a five-hour episode here. But he, oh, he mentions one other thing. It, I mean, it can <laughs> but he mentions another note at the end of his anesthetic revelation. And this one I really liked. I don't know if it was mind-blowing, but I'll definitely remember this one. And he, he describes, for the first time I've ever read, philosophy as a detection of deception in the senses. And he describes it almost exactly like that mirror. So that, like, you realizing, hey, that flower has the form of a flower and the color of a flower, and that form and color are both real things, even if that reflection of a flower is not a real flower Oof. it's reflecting a real form and a real color um so just just you sitting down and being like hey wait a minute again he he describes this philosophy as a detection of a deception in the senses just you trying to pick that apart you've kind of like struck on philosophy even if you don't know it and there's got to be you know toddlers out there that are putting the stuff together in their head without putting words and they're sort of, you know, down this detective path of, like, figuring out reality and, and non-reality. It's like that meme that I saw. It's like when, you, when, you, when you're, like, three years old and you suddenly become conscious or some shit, but you can't find the words to describe it. So it's like you're just, like, a toddler just like, oh, fuck, I'm alive. Like, <laughs> what, is con what is consciousness? <laughs> so I didn't read the, the other book that he had. I'm, I'm going to try to whip through because. You again, went above it's, and it's, beyond, bro. I did go above and beyond. I spent like six hours. I'm so proud. I should of you. have been doing some other stuff, just reading through this. <laughs> so I've I've got a list of analogies, and I'm just going to read a bunch of his analogies, and then I've got a couple other highlights here, M more than we're going to get through. But I'm going to I'm going to get like the the nuggets, I think. So his first analogy in this book, Pluriverse from 1920, it's I noted noted it as the candy analogy, and he's trying to describe the concept of of from many to one, um, which sort of encompasses his idea of what pluriverse really means. But I'm going to try to let the analogy do the talking a little bit here. So he says, 
As merely a provisional smile, I will instance the body of time, a confectioner's batch of candy, made to be drawn out in the usual sticks. And in case anyone here hasn't seen like the old-timey candy maker YouTube videos, um, there'll be a guy, you know, making some sort of candy, and they've got like all these different colored rods. And so he might grab like a whole bunch of red rods and some white rods and some black rods. And the way that he twists them together and stretches them out, it turns into like one tiny little piece of candy. And when you cut it in half, the candy makes a pattern. It looks like an apple because he put all the red rods on the outside that look like the skin. And he put white rods on the inside that look like the meat of the apple. And then like one or two black rods in the middle that kind of look like the seeds. And you've probably seen these before. They make watermelons and cherries and all sorts of shapes and stars and stuff they take these this huge you know um stash of candy and they just keep stretching it until it's this tiny little like peppermint sort of uh, uh thickness it's not like so anyways, a taffy or some shit right is that, is that kind of like a taffy but it's like hard candy usually like licorice something like that look if name. you haven't seen it before look it up it'll make a lot more sense but it's this concept of taking all these different single colored rods and you know all together in a fasci he kind of calls it um, it would be like, you know, like a foot around essentially. But if you if you stretch it because it's all just sugar, you can make it like the width of a pencil. And when they all get squashed together like that, uh, you don't know they all came from different rods. It just looks like this one shape or this one pattern that, that gets combined together. So he's saying that in making up a batch ordinarily of 25 pounds, so this is a lot of candy, you know, a huge big roll of it. He says the expert makes a fasci or rope of rolls or differently colored stock so ingeniously disposed that when drawn out and broken at any point, the ends of any stick will present a picture, possibly a star or a rose or a bird. If these various strands of the fasci may represent the elements or laws in the body of the stream of time, we may envision a thing in the present tense as an aspect or picture done on the hither ends of the laws so this dude in my mind is talking about like the fourth dimension he's talking yeah. about everything that's happening at any given moment and if you just take like a snapshot in time and combine it all and just like crystallize it into one moment that this is just like a picture that the picture doesn't represent the elements the elements are like all of the you know this 25 pounds of candy that went into it and that all this work was applied and stretched out. And this little picture, there's thousands more of these pictures. And they all came from that same bundle of, of candy, you know, or of, of life as he calls it here. So I, I love that analogy so much just because if you ever actually seen these old-timey guys stretching out the candy, that's kind of what him envisioning, like, reality as. Yeah, that would make sense, right? Where, you, you know, we've talked about the divine alchemist, right? Where all, it's this entire process that goes into it. And, you know, you can get into the whole either time is linear or forever and that one point. There's only one point in time and everything is, you know, a reflection of that point, whatever. Like, but that's the way I take that. It's like there's everything else going on in the background. So that's the dark matter that we don't know about. So it's like it's like when you have an alphabet soup, you know, the reality that we know is the alphabets, but everything around it, we don't even fucking understand. And that's, that's the, what matters. That's the tomato soup, bro. <laughs> that's the yeah. tomato part. <laughs> well, but <laughs> you know what I'm getting at. Like, that's the dark matter. That's the stuff that they say that the universe is made up of that we don't even begin to comprehend. And I, that's the way I take that analogy. It's like you got this other stuff, but then it all boils down to that one fucking point, bro. So let, me, let me keep whipping through them because they, they get better and better as we go here. 
So this one is a music analogy, and he's defining finite intervals versus infinite intervals. And I think you've brought this up a couple times, the whole, like, it turtles all the way down. Mm. Um, there's the also the story. <laughs> well, there's, there's <laughs> the concept of uh, this one's a little bit harder. But if, if you take, like, a distance, a foot, right, I can half that so that it's six inches and then half that so that it's three inches. And the philosophical debate here is that you can always half it for infinity and never actually get down to zero because it's there's always an item, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah, there's always a way to divide something by two. No matter what, you can always divide it in two, even if it's just conceptually. So this this music analogy is describing this concept of the finite versus the infinite. He says that it was our thought to apply these necessities to practical music, that the maestro may pride himself on his distinction of tones and semitones, and so determine the matter of music. But the genius of music holds its carousel between his lines, an infinite division. Here is what we learn how the violin is queen of all instruments, the piano, the organ, the harp. These are all fixed at given intervals. Only the violin finds the infinite difference where even the pulse of the artist varies the pressure on the string and denotes the soul. And I love this analogy. I'm big in the music, but also this concept of, yeah, I mean, piano, organ, harp, guitar, they've got specific ridges and like the notes and the frequencies lock in and you tune them whereas a violin there's no frets on it so you can essentially get an infinite amount of music out of it and if you apply that whole like you can always divide something in half forever and get you know infinity out of that so you essentially in theory could play a violin and always just give like half pressure and half that pressure and half that pressure move it up a half note um, in ways that you can't do with many other musical instruments yeah, that's what Plato was, or not Plato, Pythagoras with the lyre. The lyre, is that is that how you say it? Lyre? The, the, one one string, the one string instrument, where that's how they figured out intervals. I mean, that's what they were doing. They were, you know, going up in increments and shit. So, absolutely. You ever, you ever seen a one, a one string uh, uh, guitar? No. I it's, mean, like a, it's like a hillbilly thing. They used to make them out of, like, <laughs> old, uh, like, tin cans or something. But I highly recommend looking up one string guitars. Total different tangent. Like a guitar in, in specific, or it's a, a one string. It looks instrument. like a guitar, but it, it's like, like a, there's a tin can at the bottom and a piece of wood, and you just hit the one string and move <laughs> your hand up and down the string. Dingle, there's like a ZZ Top song I think that's got. It's pretty, I'll send it to you after this since we probably can't show it for copyright. So okay, so an, another analogy. He does a couple Bible quotes here. And there's a, if I can find it, there's an awesome quote in here where he kind of like slams the uh, King James version of the Bible. And he mentions that, that King James has essentially destroyed the New Testament and has removed all the esoteric teachings out of that, it. Yeah, you, you blew my mind with that when you, when you I, brought that I'll, up. I'll find it. If, if I have to search for it, I'll find it before we wrap up here. But so the first Bible quote is from Job. And, um, and this is one of his examples of how translation of the bible has removed its esoteric meanings and again we're talking about benjamin paul blood here dude that got high off nitrous and then read the bible and read hegel and came up with these really awesome revelations and you've never heard of them before so him quoting job and he says here's the vulgar translation um that, that most people know and i think when he says vulgar he's usually referring to the king james translation so the king james translation of this ancient scripture we read that Zophar the Namathite, it's probably wrong, 
said unto Job, and that he would show thee secrets of wisdom, and that they are double to that which is. And he says that that's not right. That's not the right translation. The correct translation of the original Hebrew um, states this: It is wisdom, not the secrets, that is double. And further, the cause here is incomplete, so that it is more relevant and ingenious import. So the actual translation, instead of and he would show thee secrets of wisdom, and they are double the witches. The real one would be, and he would reveal unto thee secrets of wisdom, for it is double to that which is really in our comprehension. So he starts going on this thread, which is very hard to determine, because he doesn't just come out and say it, but he essentially says at some point that whatever you learn, some new information that you found out, it's at least twice as complicated as you'll ever know. And that even if you understand everything that reality and sanity has to offer, there is at least double that in this other like insane realm that you will never, ever figure out because you're stuck in this realm of sanity. And what again, this is like that fuck? whole like, hey, bro, you got to like, you know, kill your ego and go out into the oneness and then you'll understand everything. He was saying this in, in a very verbose American um, sort of way, you know, he he wasn't getting all woo-woo about it, but he's saying the exact same things. And he's got yeah. another one. He translates this uh, this quote from Psalms, and it says, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, in which con continuance were fashioned, and whereas yet there was none of them. And he retranslates this to say, My underdeveloped substance did thy eyes see, and thy book were all of them written down, the days which have been formed, while yet none of them was here. And he's again, he's trying to explain this, this concept of that, like, even though your eyes saw it, and you're able to write it down in a book, um, it's only this, like, tiny little sliver of what you're actually um, able to understand out there. It's this, again, he's kind of going back to this concept of, like, the infinite in a way. And he's doing that after like while he's high on nitrous he's i don't think picking... so man. from what he was writing this was all like he'd get high on nitrous he'd have a revelation he'd try to bring that revelation back and then write about it as much as he could but this whole premise is that like if he took you know let's say he took a word back from this insane realm you know he was enlightened with this one word he brings it back in a, into sanity he has to write like a hundred words to describe that one little nugget that he brought back. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's kind of the way it worked. It wasn't necessarily he got super high and then started like, like, you know, Crowley style, get, you know, super high on some drug <laughs> and then just write and the aliens are talking through me and I'm like auto dictating and things like this. It wasn't like that. It was more like he went, had this experience, sat down, reflected on it for a long time, and then went back to his, you know, his dark hole and fucking wrote about it for like four months. Yeah, that's wild, bro. But like what you're getting at, dude, it's like even within our own reality, there are other, re that's extreme theory, like there are other realities that are parallel to this one all at the same time, and maybe well, you're And he's even... going through them. He's going through every, like, like a high-concept philosophy, I think, one by one with these analogies. Get the fuck out of here. So he, here's another one. This one was, because I mentioned before, I've tried to read Hegel plenty of times. I feel like maybe one day it'll click, but it hasn't yet. But he's trying to describe 
the Hegelian dialectic. Are you familiar with the Hegelian dialectic? Is correct me if I'm wrong. That's the problem, solution, reaction, blah blah blah. Like, is that? Yeah, synthesis, antithesis, mm-hmm. and then whatever the combination of the two is. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have it re- memorized. So he's trying to describe this in a very straightforward way, which I appreciate because I actually understood this one. Um, and and the whole concept of Hegelian dialectic is is not it's it's uh, counterintuitive in that if you want to get to a certain result, you almost have to do the opposite of that result to prompt it. So if like mm-hmm. I want to get gun control, you know, passed, I have to cause a whole bunch of gun violence, <laughs> which might seem counterintuitive. But then the the opposite reaction to that will cause the rest of the world. Oh, we didn't like how that happened. Let's enforce more, you know, gun restriction. An example of this Hegelian method of like cause the problem because you know what the proposed solution will be. Therefore, you've got control over both sides. So his analogy, freaking genius. This one blew my mind a little bit, and it's so short. So he says, um, with the wind blowing, say directly from the west, the expert skipper faces his sails diagonally to its pressure. And so by tackling alternately to the right and left, glides forward by degrees in the direction of its very source. When we consider how the water is entirely negate or inert, while the wind is the only mode of force, the fact that the west wind blows the vessel to the west calls for an explanation of the dialectic of the skipper, which out of the negative water achieves his positive advance. So he's saying like, it's counterintuitive that if you want to sail west, that you would go against west wind. But to a you know to someone that knows how to operate sailboats, I'm assuming he's right here because I don't know how to operate sailboats. Um, but that this counterintuitive of like going towards the thing that you're technically against will actually get you to where you want to go. To use that to describe the Hegelian dialectic was like mm, like I it was beautiful. Like I, I haven't seen anyone describe it in such a short and visual way before and like i I feel like that's going to be one of my go-to analogies now in my brain well i got a better one for you bro you ever rode a bike like a like a motorcycle rode a bike bike maybe a moped does a moped count (laughs) kind of well anyways you have this this gyroscope effect that when you want to go to the left you push to the right and it's a weird sensation because you're pushing like this and you're leaning at the same time. You're going the opposite direction that you're... No, I'm not aware of that. That's crazy. Yeah, so if, you, if you're riding a motorcycle, right, it's got like this gyroscope effect. It's called push steering. And in, for you to go to the left, you push to the right and you lean. So it's like a, like you feel it too when you're riding. Sometimes I'll be like, like this. I'll go like this and I feel it. So when, when I go like this, I'm boom, I go and, and I turn. <laughs> I turn left by turning right. It's the craziest shit, bro. Well, you didn't know now, but like every time you're doing that, you're exemplifying the Hegelian dialectic, right? Exactly, <laughs> because some like for the because pe- the the thing is, you know, in when if you're gonna go have a crash, people panic, right? And they'll you know if the car is coming from the left and they want to go right, they'll turn to the right. And if you're going at, you know it's above 15 miles an hour. If you're going up, you're actually steering yourself into the car. So people will instead of Doing the opposite, because again, it's you know you're in a high pressure situation. Your car's about to fucking crash into you. They turn to the right, and essentially they're pushing themselves into the front of the car already by the the way the physics works. 
So it's like this crazy thing. But then at low speeds at like two miles an hour, five miles an hour, if you turn right, you'll go right. And if you turn the left, you'll go The rules are different, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking crazy, bro. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, relate that to that. I'm going to keep going on, on a couple more here. So this one I also thought was really interesting because uh, it's on perpetual motion machines. You know what a perpetual motion machine is? No, what the fuck is that? Okay, so it was it was sort of like an old-timey concept, but it's based on the idea that the 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 Earth spins on its own and the stars spin on its own. They just do it forever and ever, and that that is just this infinite cycle that never stops. And people thought that at some point in the past that you could create like a mechanical system of pulleys and levers or something, some kind of mechanical construction that would also just run forever, either using like gravity or using. It's like um, the bird in the water that always keeps coming back. Like the. Yeah, exactly. Except for that water eventually evaporates and it stops doing that. So that's not perpetual mode. That's very close to perpetual motion machine. Um, so. As far as I'm aware of, it's basically like it's an impossibility. It's like a thought a, experiment. It's a negation of physics. Well, it's it, well, it's not just a thought experiment because people actually were trying to build these things way back in the day <laughs> for a long, long time. And it was, you know, it was like this uncrackable code. And I think someone might have proven like you just can't get it because friction and resistance and gravity at some point is going to over time work against it. Anyways, I don't want to go on a tangent here. So he's talking about perpetual motion machines, and he says that, and again, this is 1860. So he says, when I was young, in almost any attic in the eastern states, there was liable to be found the debris of some device for perpetual motion. The latter is not necessarily an extravagant dream. The stars seem to exemplify it, and even if one could not independently produce momentum for mechanical use, still, with the help of motion everywhere apparent, he might hope to hitch his wagon to the star and get the benefit of its impulse. And a certain striking fact in physics encouraged the hope of an absolute production of momentum for freedom, as if thereby one might share the fortune of the stars themselves, however they come by it. So I love the way that he's writing this. I don't know what philosophy he's steering it to, but this quote of, of a perpetual motion machine being the concept of hitching your wagon to a star and that was basically it. They wanted to figure out a way to like push that wheelbarrow, you know, all the way down the field without them having to put it on um, an ox or having them push it or create something where they actually had to like devise a pulley system. They just wanted a way to like make that thing do itself. You a know? shortcut. Yeah. Yeah. An it's like, automata, it's like, a, like, like a it would have blown robot. their mind to see like dishwashers and washing machines, I think, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep going. There's two more, and the, the second one's my favorite out of the entire book. So that the first one is the woodsman, the axe, and the temple analogy. And he says that a woodsman with his axe, by the mere twist of his wrist, can sever a three-inch limb by using momentum. But the steady pressure of all his strength might not sever it in an hour. So a man with one blow of a sledge will crush a stone that may have upheld the temple for a thousand years. This one kind of was, was uh, some blow-the-mind material, because I'm thinking, you know, you have a hammer, you use the momentum with almost no effort, and you can lob anything off because how sharp it is and the motion. But if you just take that um, edge of the hammer and just put it up against the tree and try to push against it as hard as you can without using that momentum, you're never going to get it through. Or if you do, it's going to take a lot more effort and energy. And he's likening this to... Um, this momentum of history and like 
the crowd maybe like the the growing um momentum of a crowd that can knock down you know thousands of years of culture and history and and tradition i think that and i uh, i relay that to the you know a drop of water can eventually break a stone type of thing you know what i mean like you know enough drops of water on that one spot over and over and over again will eventually break it so that's how chinese yeah. water torture works too yeah on the forehead and then i'm gonna get to my my final favorite analogy here and we'll see how much you want to get into because i've got plenty more notes but this one i i titled the italian peasant versus the cowboy uh, because he's doing this analogy and again this is my favorite one because it is so uniquely american I'm, we're so used to reading these grimoires and shit from europe and all this like They're dog dicks yeah, dog dicks. But but I love it when someone mentions in like a they're talking about Hegel and they're talking about God and philosophy, and then they talk about a cowboy on the range with his gun. Um and he and he talks about some other really cool stuff here. But here's the analogy. He says and then he, he paints a, a really great picture for this one. An Italian peasant enters the lofty vestibule of Saint Peter's with bowed and uncovered head. Before him in the dim religious light the pillared silence stoops from arches vast to uplift the melody of the finest voices to be gathered in all of Europe, while happily the great organ, yearning in the pathos of its theme, shudders at the memories therein. On every side around him, appearing the loving contributions of a thousand years of art and culture, who or what is he among these aesthetic treasures, which his unsophisticated reverence to question or criticize the doctrine that he hears? An original thought, if he could even have one, would be anomalous, even profane. He is both mentally and materially overborn and outclassed. So this is this Italian peasant walking into the church surrounded by thousands of years of tradition. And it's like, don't try to come up with your own thoughts, bro. Like, we've got this. You know, we've we figured it out. Here's what God looks like. There's the stained glass. There's the book. You know the deal. You know, like, stay in your lane. We've got this. We figured it out. So now um, Blood is saying, take this, this peasant, medieval Europe, and this church with thousands of years of culture, and he compares it to a cowboy on the plains. And he starts with a, a poem, and he goes into uh, the prose. So, And I want to I talk about the poem, because it's, it's actually kind of a cool one. He says, a land where the mountains are nameless, and the rivers all run God knows where, like the lives that are airings and aimless, and the deaths that just hang by a hair. So now he's ascribing not this world of a thousand years of tradition and strict laws. Now it's like, I don't even know where that river goes, bro. Like, this is a brand new world, you know? If you walk too far in that direction, you might just die because there's, like, danger out there that we don't even know about. So he elaborates outside the poem, and he says, The plainsman, the cowboy, with his rope and his gun, take the withers of the bay mare lovingly between his callous knees, for the long rope that covers her 30 leagues between sun and sun, your thousand years, talking about the, the guy in the church, your thousand years are but a yesterday to him. And if he wants a church, he's got to build it under no other authority or inspiration than his own. This one, like, I, I love this one so much because it's, it's that stuffy, medieval, you know, like European uh, go with tradition. This is how it's been for thousands of years. Just do it. And he's like, nah, here's a cowboy out in the middle of a fucking field with a rope and a gun. And if he wants a church, he can't look around and rely on thousands of years of tradition. You know, like it's, it's between him and God and the church that he builds 
right there on that spot. So I don't know. I, I for some reason I just love this analogy. I've never heard anything like this before. And at the beginning he says Saint Peter's is he at the Vatican, bro? He says an Italian peasant enters the lofty vestibule of Saint Peter's. He just he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church and the establishment of mm. you know the the papacy and just tradition. I think he's just talking about tradition here, but that. Um, this poor medieval peasant, you're not even allowed to ask a question. You're not even allowed to form an original thought while you're in the greatness of, you know, all of this, this history. Like, how dare you even think that you've got some kind of original thought that hasn't already been written in this book before you. And then it's like the cowboy, it's like, he's, he's free to just decide who God is to him. You know, what his yeah. philosophy is, it's, it's up to him, him and his gun and his cow. So do you think that, what he's trying to get at there is another another form of the insanity, right? This this cowboy that isn't like in a desolate landscape, like, you know, nothing there to dictate him. He can see things for what they truly are versus this tame peasant that does what he needs well, to do. Well, he's got the he... freedom to. I don't know if he inherently sees them for how they are, mm. but he has the freedom to do it. And I, I go to, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas, where there's this quote of, of course. Um, lift any rock and there I am. You know, it's he, it was very much like you don't mm. have to walk 100 miles and go to church and pray and give, you know, tithing and everything. Just, you know, just reflect by yourself. There you go. You're at church right now, you know. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of how I saw it. Like the cowboy out in the field with his cow, he doesn't need to go to this Tartarian church. So, <laughs> oh, did, I, did I slip that in there? My bad. Yeah, you did, bro. This Tartarian Cathedral. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. That's actually really... I mean, you can interpret that a hundred different ways, you know, if, if you really want to sit there and nitpick at it. But that that's that's even... You have society nowadays. Like, everything that's presented to you is what it is. You know, you, you got to toe the line type of thing. Or you're going to be a fucking cowboy, you know, an outlaw that still believes in God but needs to do what needs to be done sometimes. And it's okay because, and then you know how you said you're going to build this church and and and, and how it. uniquely American. I mean, paranoid American. I'm I'm a sucker for anything that is like a hundred percent American. Doesn't exist outside of the Americas. Uh, so okay, so I got I got a couple more here. If we can keep if we can keep whipping through them here. Got um, this is the part I had to do a search for it. I'm not big on Bible quotes and verses. It's such a deep topic. Um, this is a Christian I mean, I've podcast. Read it a couple though, times, but right. yeah, it's a very it's a Christian podcast, so this fits in perfectly. He's talking about the the Holy Prayer, um, the one that everybody knows, at least if you're a Catholic. So this is from Matthew six nine, and it's you know Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do you know this the whole thing? I'm not gonna I'm not no. gonna do it because this is oh oh I'm gonna read the whole thing then. Oh damn it! So this is this is the holy prayer that you would say if you went to Catholic church, at least that I know of it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You hear this in every mm. single Catholic church service you'll ever go to. It's just like the go-to. Um, so blood breaks this down though, and I'm going to skip to the part that is the most interesting and then I'm going to read the context for it. But he says the new Testament will go for nothing. If such contradictions shall be allowed to outface its esoteric spirit. This is him shitting all over the, the King James <laughs> translation that I just read. That was the King James translation. Um, 
And I'm not sure if I can fully translate or understand what he's getting at, but I'm going to read it. So he says that leading up to that statement about the New Testament destroying the esoteric tradition within the Bible, he says, there can be no consistent interpretation of these sentences other than that all power and disposition are of God. How utterly impertinent were the adjuration, lead us not into temptation, in any other understanding than that the guidance and inspiration are God. Yet we have, we have it from St. James. Let no many say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God is not tempted of any, neither tempteth he any man. This protest, however, came from the vulgar consciousness under the law and lacked the refinement and second sight of Jesus and St. John. And this is when he reiterates that the New Testament will go for nothing if these contradictions are allowed to outface the esoteric spirit. So I've... I feel like I need to go deeper into this to understand it fully, but he's basically saying that the Our Father that I grew up as like ingrained in the back of my head is sort of like the uh, like they're they're hiding it from us, bro. You know, like they gave us the watered down version, and the real version's got more esoteric meaning behind it. Oh, a hundred percent, bro. I mean, I, I I believe that, but this dude's getting into that shit, bro. Because yeah, I'm I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember he he talks about Saint John, I think, in this in this pamphlet i'm trying to find the part where he talks about him and jesus talking about him well i've, I've got a couple more as you find it and i'll stop when you when you've got yours so yeah. he i've got a, a note here where he's basically saying that the protestant faith is boring philosophically it's just like a a dead-end mental exercise in, in his opinion and he says there needs no more common sense to admit that no one miracle should be more astounding than another nor than the whole a man rising from the grave having a body already is not half the miracle of a bird perfecting in an egg and with only an impersonal heat to promote its development that a man was born of a virgin is nothing compared to the fact that he was born at all this wonder like every other accomplishment of nature is but a question of historical evidence in which every incident microscopically criticized is in some particular unique the miracle of a local fact fades in its cosmic background. And all those words, the, the ones that really stood out to me, is basically saying that a man being born of a virgin is nothing compared to the fact that he was born at all. And that was kind of mind-blowing to me, because it's like, yeah, like, sure, it's a miracle that, you know, you can fly. If you, if you could show me that you can fly right now, you know, maybe that's a miracle but the fact that you even exist and that you've got like capillaries and eyes and organs and like that is perhaps even a greater miracle than some other thing that's fairly mundane or that he mentions here that um, no one miracle should be more astounding than another nor than the whole. Meaning that one miracle can't be bigger than another miracle and no miracle by itself is bigger than the fact that miracles can exist, period. <laughs> It sounds a little bit cyclical, right? Like some of this been doing drugs, but it also makes sense once uh once you do enough nitrous. So this is again coming from him having these revelations, right? So I mean I'm tempted to try some nitrous, but then I'm like, you know what, man, I don't know if I if I should or shouldn't. <laughs> I don't think you're gonna get the the philosophical revelation that he's promising in this book from the methods that you'd be available to, unless you know a doctor, or a, a dentist that's willing to let us in, you know, after hours. Right. I mean, we should probably just chip our teeth and just go in and like get a procedure done and be like, 
Yeah, so uh, I'm going to keep this little notebook right here next to me. And when I come I, got, to... I do have a trick for anyone out there is that when you go to the dentist, you just tell them that you typically need more and just try not to crack a smile or laugh as they keep cranking it up. Just hold it together as long as humanly possible and then just be like, yeah, up more, up more. And eventually you'll you'll pretty much cap out. What? You've done this? <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's not like an exact uh, ratio for every single person, right? Some people are more or less susceptible to anesthesia. So if you go in there and they crank it up just a little bit and you give them the thumbs up, you're like, yeah, I feel it, I'm good. They'll just cut you off at that point and they'll start going to work. Um, and then likewise, if they crank it up and they see that you start like giggling or drifting off or like you're drooling and like, oh, I see God, they'll probably crank it down a little bit and increase the oxygen to the nitrous ratio. But if you can fucking hold a poker face, even if you're blasting <laughs> out to outer space, then this is you not can... medical advice, by the way. You know, people are like, yeah, yeah, I keep turning it up. They fucking their fucking brain is fried, bro, while they're trying to stay there. I think so, okay. the part so, that I read was somewhere else. Go ahead. So I've, I've got another analogy here. And this one, it, it felt, originally it felt maybe a little bit um, ignorant uh, in like the crowd sense of like, hey, here's this whole group of uh, Native Americans and Indians and I know how they think and I know <laughs> that they're, you know, like n inferior to me because I'm this civilized European it sounds like that as he writes it, but I really, really, by the end of it, it doesn't feel like that's the vibe here. It's just, it's the way that it's written here. So anyways, with that preface, he says that an English dictionary with its 2,000 pages carries some 350,000 different words of whose meanings the average citizen might know a tenth. Our Indians at the time of Columbus may have had 200 words among which were only a few adjectives and no signs of abstraction. This one, I don't know if is fully accurate, but I'm just going with what he wrote here. So he's basically saying that compared to English uh, speaking language with 350,000 words, that Indians only had 200 words and that they didn't even understand abstract concepts. Yeah, the, the face you're making is the face that I'm making too when I'm reading it's it. But let me just racist, continue. Bro. It sounds like it, but <laughs> let me continue here because I feel like he wraps it up in a, in a way. Conceive then the utter latency, saying nothing of the potentiality of the Indian mind. So here he's saying like it's a limitation of their language, not of their mind. Um, that in the Indian mind of such meanings as memory, objectivity, veracity, heredity, 10,000 of the like, which were wholly beyond his faculty of expression or even focalization in his attention. Again, this is talking like they couldn't understand abstract concepts in, in his uh, opinion here. And he says that under strong emotion, he could merely contort his habitually immobile visage or gesticulate in road imitation while his heart may be voluble and inarticulate and helpless meaning. So like they're going through emotions or they're having a thought that they don't have the vocabulary to describe because they're limited to 200 words, um, which I still don't think is right, whatever. He could not know. He could not connectedly link um, or think. He could not be said to feel the meanings which only culture could educate up to sane and conventional expression even to himself. Yet the basis for all this exploitation was within him, his birthright, and as a monad and a soul. He was not a stock or a stone, 
but counted as one in the spirit world, where even the beast is open to some revelation, which in this instant shall carry, however cryptically, that hint of initiation, the hint that now you know. So he's talking about that, like, even if, and again, like, there's there's this racist superior element to this. I'm like, I know 350,000 words, and you might only know 200 just because you're an Indian. But he's saying that that they have the same revelations and even if they don't have the words for it they're all capable of the same thing and once they do have that revelation there's a common language between the two so even if you don't even if you're not speaking the words just like your mannerisms and the way that you're carrying yourself and the emotions you're going through you can like identify that in someone else said before it's like that that real recognized real mentality of like you don't have to voice it to me it's just like that that look in your eye when something comes up that like, you know, there's a solar eclipse and I look over at you and you're like, this is cool. You know what I mean? Instead of like panicking, like, oh my God, the sun's gone away. Like that, like, yeah, he knows what's up. You know what I mean? That's kind of, I think what he's getting to here, that, that the, the initiation that he got through, you know, nitrous, but that once you're initiated, you can see that in others and that it's like this global language almost. Yeah. It's what I said earlier. Like, even if you do see something in the DMT realm, you we lack not you but we lack as a people the language to be able to describe what we're seeing you know and maybe that person that he's the the indigenous people he's talking about is the indians that supposedly had what 200 words which i don't think that's too accurate but it's kind of racist to me i gotta look into that i don't think that's accurate either i think that that maybe the only you know told the white man about 200 of their (laughs) words and they didn't like give them all of them yeah. And again, like who's Indian? It's not like they they came to the New World and there was just this one tribe of Indian. And yeah, they all were like this, you know. They all had their group. own dialects and all that shit. Dialects so. and thoughts and and um, you know cultures and gods and everything, pantheons. Okay, so I've got uh, towards the end of the book, he starts posting some responses that he got. So after he posted this pamphlet, he got this onslaught of people writing in and philosophers and poets and doctors. And this is um, one that came from someone that's called a natural. And he dis- he makes a distinction in the book that what a natural is, in quotes, is that someone that, like, the high society would consider a fucking bumpkin. You know, like a redneck out in, uh, that doesn't know, you know, anything. No education. Um, even though a natural in those times would have been someone that is probably more educated than someone in, like, public school today. But a natural just didn't go through and rub elbows with everyone and actually learn Kant and Hegel and everything. So this is a letter that came from someone that was a self-proclaimed natural. And he says, I haven't got what you would call an intellectual memory. Things come to me in flashes out of experience. They pull me up short and I say to myself, yeah, that's it. That's it. I understand. I see why that's so and what it means and how far it extends. That's 5,000 years old. Adam thought it just after Cain killed Abel, or Abel thought it just before he died, or Eve learned it from Lilith, or it struck Abraham when he went to sacrifice Isaac. Sometimes things hit me like that, real deep, here in the desert. I can see just over the horizon that the tents of Moab are in the wilderness. I feel that yesterday and today are the same, that I've crossed the prairies of the everlasting years. I've played with Ishmael in the wild hills, and I fought with Ahab. I feel that time and the world are small affairs. You see how it is. I was never trained how to think, and I get stunned by my own thoughts that strike me from right out of the center. Sometimes I'd like to write them down, but I can't write. 
In fact, I can't even think. You know how this is. Like, this guy writing that's not, you know, high doctor society, he's not trying to flourish his words and make it, he's not throwing in Kant and Hegel and Plato and shit. He's literally saying like, dude, I had this crazy experience and I can see thousands of years into the past and I know that we're all one and that time and the world itself are like nothing compared to this experience. But he's like, I would like to write it down, but I don't know how. In fact, I don't even know how to think. He was like, but you know, bro, like, because I wrote your, I read your pamphlet, like, you know what I'm talking about, and I don't have to express it beyond this, like, you know, this very horrible... It's a universal of... language. And it's like, I know what you're trying to say, bro, and I know that, like, no words in the world are ever going to let you communicate it, but I already know what you're talking about. Like, I've been there, you know? God, I don't know. I, I love that part so much. So, okay, he's got a couple others here. He, he makes a likens to a near-death experience of drowning. And I think this gets where he's a little bit into like pseudoscience of the the eighth or the nineteenth century, where they were still figuring out, you know, how the body worked and how science worked. But he says, many patients who have recovered from near drowning have reported wonderful reminiscences of their past lives. Probably the pressure of an unusual volume of blood distends the wrinkled and faded plemsets of the brain and freshens the field of memory under anxious introspection. And doubtless the exhilaration of which anesthesia seems to be or follow in excess is still vivifying the mentation of the patient when he is coming to. Nor is it surprising that under high stimulation should one be lured to the more poetical regions of his own culture, which for us are apt to be the historical and sacred past and the savor of problems of philosophy. So again, he's, he's likening this anesthetic experience and coming out of it to someone that had a near death experience and coming out of it that like, and, and that's such a, a common motif that people that have these near death experiences, like I saw the light, I saw God, um, you know, I've like, it changed my whole life. I understand that there's something else out there sort of experiences, not everybody, but just like not everybody that goes and has a tooth extracted comes out and says that they saw the face of God either, you know? <laughs> Yeah, or not everybody has a breakthrough when they do DMT or something like that. But yeah, I could see how they were trying to really pinpoint, you know, the, trying to find the answers. And I mean, that's what he goes back to the whole philosophy thing. It's like, without philosophy, would we truly be, you know, seeking for the truth? And it's like, well, what is even the truth? Like, you know, like there's all these things of just going back and forth. And I forgot what you called it earlier, but it's pretty cyclical right where it's like just back and forth back and forth type of thing the, the dog chasing it's i'm trying to find he had another analogy about the dog and he says okay this is it right here he calls it the hound of heaven um <laughs> so he says so blood basically uh, suggests that philosophy itself is a journey as much as it is an achievement that's this like you're constantly chasing it and that philosophy is a battle as much as it is peace which again, it's like, it, you, it's never just like this one static thing. It's a constantly moving system. So the, some of the bullet points that I made here is that the nature of philosophy is to have an appetite and yearning for knowledge. The use of philosophy is to fulfill that appetite. And there's a satisfaction that goes even beyond philosophy, which philosophy itself seeks for. It seeks this thing that's beyond itself, which only philosophy can seek and which it may be ventured only philosophy can attain. This one I had to read over many, many times, but I felt like it made more sense each time I read it. 
so it's again it's it's this dog chasing its tail and he and he goes on and he says this hound of heaven is on its own trail and the vestige still lures the scent of a foregone conclusion so it's like you're chasing your own tail because you know that like that tail is so exciting the the concept of catching that tail would be such an exciting experience and that the anticipation of catching that tail is far greater than the actual act of you catching that tail because you catching your tail stops you know like you just stop right there you you stop running the thing's over the anticipation's gone um so he's likening this to like philosophy that that philosophy isn't about finding this ultimate answer it's about like that journey there that just constantly keeps going forever and ever i got a um, really deep quote it's pretty philosophical i don't know if you're gonna understand it or not but it took not. me some years to to understand this one but all right, hear me out, bro. Ready? Is this blood or is this something else? Uh, this is unknown. This is anonymous. I don't know who who wrote this. I think it might have been like Socrates. like QAnon. Is this QAnon? No, this is like Socrates or Plato. I forget who it is, dude. So, how much would would a woodchuck if a woodchuck? <laughs> <laughs> Sally sells seashells by the seashore. Yeah, he would chuck. He would as much as he could, and chuck as much wood as a woodchuck would if a woodchuck could. Chuck, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's my philosophical rambling there. What were you gonna say, bro? That you what? Uh, well, he he was trying to expand on the <laughs> Hound of Heaven, and what it takes him an entire book to say this one thing is that the mystery of existence is not something that's hidden like a face behind a mask but that the existence itself is the process and the search for that face behind the mask. Again, it's like he talks in these these cyclical things, but... Why, Thomas? Why what? Why does he talk like this? Like, what's the point? You know what I mean? Because, again, like, we just went through, I don't know, like, ten different analogies, and they're all sort of saying the same thing. So, to me, it's this guy that's got this light in the middle of the room. This might be this is my own horrible analogy compared to like ten that we just went through that were really good analogies, but he's got this light in the middle. Of, you're in the middle of your room, right, Juan, and you've got this light in the middle, and you're trying to describe the light to me. But every position you stand in your room, it's a little bit different because I don't know. There's like a little shadow caster, there's like a lampshade. So like every time you take a step to the left, it changes a little bit. So your description changes a little bit, mm-hmm. and it's and it's almost like you think that if you just revolve around the the room. And give me 50 different descriptions of this light that eventually I'll get it. I'll understand like, oh, you're talking about a light. I see it now. But it's never going to happen because you can only do so many, um, you know, uh, finite segments. But if I'm like, all right, now take half a step towards the next one. Okay, now take half of that step. and It gets that, that turtles all the way down analogy where you can't describe this thing no matter how many tries um, you make and no matter how many different analogies you try to come up with, you're never going to fully describe it. And this whole entire book and the book that came after that <laughs> is him saying, like, again, it's it's almost like that, that natural that wrote in. It's like I'm trying the best I can to put these in words, but I can't write it because I can barely even think it. But me saying that it's hard to put into words and that I can't think it you should know what I'm talking about. So now I have communicated to you, even though it feels like I just bumbled words together. And his book and his pamphlet were just a, 
a higher version of that with a lot more words and harder to read through. But that letter that I wrote from that natural, I feel like that that totally summarizes all of his work. And I, I, I absolutely fall in love with that guy that wrote in because it was it's such an egoless thing. It's this guy like, hey, bro, I'm a bumpkin. I don't even know how to spell my own name. But, you know, like I understand you. I, I just love it so much. And they didn't give his name, bro. The guy that wrote in. The guy that wrote in. Uh, I don't think so. He just referred to him as a natural, and then described what a natural was. That's beautiful. Yeah, and and again, the the second book was was published after he died. So if if the person, whoever it was that published it, would have never even put it out, we would have never even had this work. Even though it is so obscure, because. Literally, dude, there's like nothing else on this guy on the internet. It's almost like, do you think it was a, a pen name or something, maybe, or like a? I don't think so, man. I mean, you can trace the the lineage of his of his family and his dad and the land that they bought in Florida, on um, you know the town of New York. So I don't think it was a pen name. I think that unfortunately, this guy didn't go to um, you know Harvard and Princeton and. He didn't live right next door to like one of the Morgans or the Rothschilds <laughs> or, you know, to the Huxleys cool name, or though. something. Yeah, he's he's got a name that's worthy of being remembered, Benjamin Paul Blood. I think when I just saw the name, I was like, that sounds like a cool guy that I want to know more about. So hopefully, we are able to revive the lineage of Benjamin Paul Blood by putting this episode out into the ether and putting it out into the tubes because there's literally no fucking videos on this guy so i think this might be the first and only one bro how do you feel about that i mean props to to benjamin paul blood man he again he was afraid i i wish i could find the exact quote it's in here somewhere but oh no this is it right here um okay yeah let me actually read this because this was this was his motivation for writing that original pamphlet by what, and this is the introduction to the pamphlet, by what follows, I rather hope to signalize than purpose to define a discovery unutterable by any, yet accessible to all, and of singular interest, if of not novel instance, which has been usual with me for nearly 14 years. I've often attempted an account of it, and I still have happily deferred publication, warned by the fate of philosophers, which was ever that if I publish too soon at last, but weary of reticence, I at last resign to that course of nature wherein every conceit of the ultimatum has come to be corrected in turn, but as a stage of growth. I'm now 40 years old, and as men reckon, doubting that I shall ever be able to better forestall my critical advantage and indulging a scruple at longer delay, lest by some advantage matter should altogether die with me, I take the chance of being called mad a mad one in my day, in order to declare, however imperfectly, and to leave in this world that which is now my assurance and poise, where before was doubt and vacillation. So he's saying in here, like, he knows, I know you're going to call me crazy, but I'm 40 years old, this happened 14 years ago, I've been working at it for the last 14 years, and my mind hasn't changed. If anything, I'm more and more convinced that I'm onto something, and it's so important that he literally says... Um, by some adventure, this matter should altogether die with me. So he's afraid that this 14 years of research and this revelation, if he dies, no one's ever going to find out about it. So he almost felt this like compulsion to put it out into the world, despite knowing that people were going to call him a, a madman. 
I wonder how many other Benjamin Pawbloods there are, and like how many other pamphlets there are of you know like of these discoveries, not particularly with nitrous, but maybe some other substance or how you're saying the guy with the mushrooms and all this shit. So I think I'd you know I'd want to dig into that and see what other. Well, I've got a long shit. list if you want to get into uh, some of the the other psychedelics out there that were like come across by not by mistake but kind of sort of uh well i mean nitrous they were intentionally trying to extract it but they didn't realize the effect it had um but specifically like all of gordon wasson's discoveries beyond i'm beyond fascinated mainly because when i in the 90s when i found out what salvia divinorum was um, and we would go up online, went to whoever's friends had the dial-up modem, AOL, whatever. This is the four-year-time one. Um, but whoever's uh, family had dial-up AOL, we went over there. And I remember looking up Salvia. Am I still Am I still on? Yeah. There you go. Internet's kind of so choppy. I remember looking up Salvia, and every time it came up on any search result, it always had Wasson next to it. And I found out years, years later that Wasson was Gordon Wasson. And again, without this guy with, with his name on every single discovery that came into the United States about salvia and um, psilocybin and a whole host of other substances. And that he worked for J.P. Morgan, that he was a banker and that he was involved with the JFK assassination. Um, but all of this, we wouldn't know about any of these uh, psychedelic substances without him, at least not as soon as we did. So all the things that he touched on in research are all have books written about them that are worth us going into at some point. What would you rate this on the, cause he has some other books. He has a book on optimism, the lesson of ages, the pluriverse, an essay in the philosophy of pluralism. I understand the pluriverse to be his like magnum opus. It's, mm. it's sort of like a, a summary of all his other works combined um, along with, he, I mean, he quotes like every one of his favorite people. He quotes Spinoza, Goethe, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He quotes St. Augustine. He quotes Eckhart. He, he just quotes like every single philosopher that he ever read, but he fits them all into this theory that he's building up over time that they're all talking about the same thing and that you can understand it, again, if you huff enough nitrous. What would you rate this, The well, the pamphlet and the book on the scale of meh? You know, no, home. We, we had it. We had a pamphlet before that was like, like listen to the review, read it yourself, buy the book or something. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> I yeah, we'll have to. We we got to figure out some standards here as we go. But whatever, we're figuring yeah. out the format. I would say that this one is a read like a Cliff Notes version. Maybe skim over the pluriverse aspect of it if you're particularly interested in the history of anesthetics and nitrous oxide specifically um, that, I mean, this is such a unique piece of work that uh, can't be ignored if, if you're even remotely interested in, in any of those topics. But when it comes to philosophy uh, outside of sort of like the highlights and the quotes and the analogies that we came across, I feel like a lot of this information has been, uh, sort of covered in many different ways, many different works. So it's not like if you never read Benjamin Paul Blood's work that you're missing out on some, you know, crazy revelation, revelation that no one's ever yeah. pointed out before. But man, like, again, like, I've never, ever read that same 
analogy of the Italian peasant in the thousand-year-old church versus a cowboy that has to create his own church. Um, it's Again, it's like this ineffable thing. Like There's so much uh, information packed into that analogy and the comparison that he's making that it would be pointless to try and like write it all out. Like You kind of either get it or you don't get it. And those and those are the kind of things that you'll only find in this particular pamphlet of, of um, Paul. And I want to I want to see if I can find one other because I mentioned before that he talked about things in a very matter of fact way. So yeah, so this is him describing the human body, which uh, I think goes directly to like this utilitarian view. He was not an esoteric woo woo guy, even though he mentioned the esoteric nature of the Bible. I don't think he saw mysteries everywhere, and this one. Uh, speaks to that. So he's talking about this uh, concept of of opposites and left and right and male and feminine, um, but he mentions how the body has two sides, right and left. So he says, from head to foot, he seems put together as two variously independent parts, each with its own leg and arm, each with its own eye and ear, and its side of organs of taste and smell, each with its own half of the brain, the lungs, the kidneys, the heart, each with its own system of nerves and vessels, and one of these sides may be at least partially paralyzed while the other works comparatively well. More intimately, observe how each of the sides in turn is double the method of its construction, and that throughout the tubular, he's talking about veins and in your capillary system, that throughout the human tubular, hollow and filled, container and content, the binding web of which we might say is the man proper, filled with blood and juices and food increment accessory the food and the juices inhabit their proper channels and with regard to the integral man may be said to enter form but not the substance like a knife stabbed into the billet of wood it may dynamically knock but it does not chemically enter um i love this because again he's not getting woo woo here he's like human beings are made of like blood vessels and tubes but that He's getting into this like form versus function and this like sameness and difference in being where he's talking about um, this man being filled with bloods and juices, but that he's both filled and the container and unfilled. It's like these analogies happening within the human body. And then when he says about the knife being stabbed into a billet of wood, this one is I'm probably reading more into it, but it's like this concept of that if you get on like a molecular level, right? If you stab something, you're not the the atoms are never actually touching the other atoms. There's always like this little mm-hmm. you know film of like electrons that are keeping things separate. So you're not never actually touching the table or never actually touching anything else. So he's mentioning this like a knife stabbed into a billet of wood. It may dynamically knock, as in like knocking these atoms out of the way to make way for its atoms, um, but not chemically enter. So that. It's not like the knife fuses with the wood. It's not like the knife is chemically changing the wood. It's just going directly through it. And he's mentioning this in terms of like, he says food, but I also take this to mean food, any input, information, knowledge that goes into the body. Um, it's just kind of like knocking things around. It's not actually like chemically changing or becoming part of you. Yeah, and he's talking about this shit. I mean, he's not a scientist by any means, but he's breaking it down a pretty good way you know what i mean like all these analogies but i mean if you if you took all your group of friends right would you put this guy in like the top one percent the top ten percent in terms of like being smart educated hold his ground philosophically 
You know, would yeah. he be in like the dumb group or would he be in like the really smart group? I think I would put him in the smart group. <laughs> yeah, so, but which is crazy because at his time, uh, he was almost regarded as like a bumpkin just because he lacked the the credentials of going to some prestigious schools or, you know, going to and being part of these different philosophical societies. He was just this dude in his house in Amsterdam getting high off nitrous and writing about philosophy. Living the good fucking life. So what do you want to get into next as far as the next topic that we're going to cover? Do you have anything in mind? I had a note for this one. I took a note because, uh, so in the beginning of this book, Blood mentions that one of the inspirations is that he got a response from a very famous poet at that time, Lord Tennyson. And Lord Tennyson, I started going, I, I'm not big on poetry, especially like European poetry, but Tennyson goes deep into all sorts of occult connections. Um, he's referred to by a lot of like Illuminati types that we go into in other areas. And one of the things that I noticed in um, <clears throat> Lord Tennyson's poetry is that there's another guy named John Fisk, and he's got a, a book called Through Nature to God. And I think this is one that I want to read at some point. It's 1889. Uh, it's on you know Gutenberg and Archive and everything. What was the name of it? It's called Through Nature to God, and it's by John Fisk. And what's interesting is that when you open up this book of Through Nature to God in 1889, it says on that front page, written in memory of Thomas Henry Huxley, who ends up being the father of Aldous Huxley. Oh, God. Um, which is this name that has that keeps coming up over and over in every single thing I've been researching lately. Um, so I've been going down like this adrenochrome uh, rabbit hole, which led me to blood, but Huxley is deeply intertwined with the discovery and the use of adrenochrome and writing about adrenochrome without his doors to perception. I don't think adrenochrome ever would have even entered, um, you know, the, the regular language and the, the movies and the TV and all the books that we've heard it in. But on top of that, um, this guy that wrote this about uh, Huxley's dad, he, I think, was onto some mysteries of nature stuff, way more woo-woo than Blood was, um, but he kind of, like, loved Blood's work. And, and anyways, this poet that Tennyson wrote back to um, Blood, this was like a celebrity calling you out. You know, this is like you from your tiny little 1,000 followers on Twitter writing some cool little thing. And then, you know, like some major celebrity retweets you. That's essentially what happened Rogan, to this guy. And it all comes through this Lord Tennyson. You can say it's Rogan that retweets It's Ro retweet yeah, it was like Rogan retweeting you, yeah. <laughs> That's not who I had in mind, but yeah, that works too. That's who would be special to me, Thomas. You know, Rogan so, reaching out and shit. So this is Blood talking about Ro like So this is Juan talking about that time Rogan retweeted him. This is Blood writing about how the poet Tennyson um, corresponded back to him and, and talked about his work. And he says, The poet Tennyson I immediately received from the laureate a cordial and explicit confirmation out of his own occasional abstractions, while not in a fully normal state, yet impressing me as likely to be of identical illumination. This illumination being coming down off of nitrous. Many other responses came to me in the course of time announcing similar, strangely inexpressible memories until I learned that nearly every hospital and dental office had its reminiscence of patients who, after a brief anesthesia, 
uttered confused fragments in some inarticulate import which always had to do with the mystery of life, the mystery of fate, of continuance, necessity, and cognate extractions, and always demanding, what is that? What does it mean? What does this amount to? Such as what is esoterically or among its comparatively few Illuminati, the anesthetic revelation. So here you go from Benjamin Blood's mouth. He says that if you want to be part of the Illuminati, you have to go through this anesthetic revelation initiation. Holy shit. So we're going to, through nature to God, he said, right? I think so. I don't know if that's the very next book, but I definitely want to jump into that one. Yeah. Because it, it seems it? like it's a it's this missing connection to all these other names and people that end up having a, a huge influence as time goes on. Yeah, we'll check that out. Do you have a copy of that one? I, I got a link to it on Gutenberg.org, so it's a free ebook. All right, cool. Yeah, just send me that after the the show, and we'll get into that. But I, I enjoyed the the. It's a different take, right? I'd never heard about this guy, obviously, because he's so obscure and and not really known. So learning about this shit, and then it really, but it really did hurt, hurt my head reading it. Like I was struggling to get through the it. First, the pamphlet is such a rough read. Yeah. It is a really because you could, and I want to say too, I, I mentioned this to you, but I was taking like huge chunks of the pamphlet and plug it into like an AI <laughs> a text a text editor, and I would literally in the AI I would say, take this old timey text and uh, translate it so that I can understand it in 2022, and I would just put in like the page of text for it, and it did a decent job most of the time. And I, actually, I think that's the... where the alien one came from. You're fucking with the, with the aliens, bro. The AI. Yeah. So this this was one. Here's an example of something that I I converted with uh, with AI GPT three. So I don't know what the original quote was. This is like the English version that AI spit out. Intelligence is a gift, and this this actually the alien energy was something that Blood said in the book. Intelligence is a gift from some alien energy. It lacks in any internal drive or need to exist. Neither a positive nor a negative position is productive. Something cannot impregnate or give birth to itself, nor can it know or understand itself, nor can it move or change itself, nor can it take on any other self-relation. And this is him again saying, like, you know, you can't understand everything unless you are everything. Yeah, it's it's an alien tech. It's an alien energy because we don't know I love, what the fuck. I never is. expected, bro, when I when I open up this book about some random guy in Amsterdam that was huffing nitrous that he's talking about Illuminati. He's talking about alien energy. Um, the end of the book, uh, I forgot this right before we were going here. I noticed that the very very end of the book, he talks about um, Moloch, and he says, "Here's the, the final or something like that. The final sense of his anesthetic revelation pamphlet, rather." says it is written that there was a war in heaven the aeons of dominion as an absolute as any beheld the banners of lucifer streaking with silver and crimson in the midst of the morning and heard the heavy guns of moloch and Bilal beating on the heights of the mind and i read that dead men have appeared as human forms not of this i deny more or better than i deny myself the tales whether they're true or false are as substantial as the thing of which they tell. And you can liken this all the way back to that mirror analogy of like, even if the tales are bullshit, and even if the stories and the religion and the mythology, even if it's bullshit, 
the things that they're writing about and the dynamics between the characters and the events happening, those are real and they represent real things. And those real things are just as real as that reflection of that room in the mirror, right? Like it's still a flower. It's still form. It's still color. It's just not a physical room, but it is a room as, you know, intelligence and knowledge allows you to identify it as such. I don't know. It's, it's such a hard thing to put into words, man. Like, that's some matrix shit right there when you go through the mirror, like like I said, Inception, so but I fuck with it all, bro. I love it all. It's fucking really interesting that this guy's able to come up with that like with the most the thing that you would least expect, right? Laughing gas. Nitrous oxide. You know, like the something that they give you at the fucking dentist that they use for fucking race cars too, you know, nitrous. Well, that's a little bit different. I, I'm pretty sure if you huff that oh, yeah. kind of nitrous, you'll, you'll die <laughs> you'll from it. But. it. <laughs> but essentially nitrous, you know what I mean? Correct, it's a, yeah. Maybe a different chemical compound, but you know what the fuck I mean. Don't. I don't would have huff. loved to read this guy's book if if someone had slipped him some DMT or some mescaline or gave him some, you know, some Treasure Coast, Penis Envy, uh, Magic Mushrooms or something. Like, okay, go write about this now. That would have been awesome. It, yeah, well, it feels almost limiting, bro, that like he was thinking this deeply into it. And the best um, thing to facilitate this was nitrous, which is such a fleeting experience, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was only as he was coming down in these, like, last moments that he's able to even, like, recollect any of the information that he got. Um, so just imagine if gave this dude uh, the Joe Rogan, you know, isolation salt tank and, uh, and some DMT, what he might have been able to come up with. What the fuck knows, but hopefully we help bring back... Mr. Blood, and I wanna, I wanna go down that rabbit hole that you're talking about because it seems interesting, and I'm kind of scared to see what we're gonna find out with Aldous Huxley and all these fucking guys. And you said the Adrenochrome connection. We, we'll do Are that you... deeper, yeah, man. The, the Adrenochrome has been the craziest path to re I mean, Adrenochrome led me to Benjamin Blood and nitrous oxide and anesthesia in general. It led me to the Satanic Panic, um, all the way up through like the 1990s, and at the the helm of all of this for some reason is freaking Aldous Huxley sitting there you know writing crazy stories for Hollywood so that it'll be a fun one we'll get into and I, I do think that what was the book that we mentioned here the the nature of God and all things or something through, through nature to God you said through nature that... to God I feel like that will give us a better understanding of someone that was peers with Aldous Huxley's dad and that maybe we can work our way down to Huxley and kind of understand mm -hmm. Um, you know, all of like the philosophy that was instilled in him through his parents, maybe, or, you know, that came down from on high and what instructed him because after Huxley, um, he just completely changes American culture almost single-handedly in so many ways. Well, sign us the fuck out of here, Thomas. All right, man. This stuff. is, uh, this is Thomas Gorns from Paranoid American. If, uh, I'll do a quick little promo here, paranoidamerican.com, comic books, coloring books, children's books about chemtrails and cryptids, uh, all kinds of fun stuff. And uh, and I'll let you maybe throw a little shout-out to a new project as the Rabbit Hole Master. What new project? Which one, you which, which one out of all of them, the, bro? The Chosen Project. Oh, well, yeah. You talked about a little bit. We're working on a comic book. I think we've talked about it on the show before, dude. We're working on a comic book. It's almost... How much how much more time do you think? I mean, you've done this a bunch of times. How much more time do you think we have left? I think we were three weeks out from having the whole thing finished, and then it's up to you on how you want to 
start releasing and teasing it. But I think three weeks from today, the lettering, the coloring, the cover, uh, everything should all be done for the first issue. So, yeah, it's going to be the chosen one, and then it's going to be a series of issues where we're going to be going through various conspiracies with other podcasters in the community and... You know, we put a few hyper sigils in. I'm just kidding. We didn't put any hyper sigils in there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be a fun little project. But yeah, that'll definitely, once we get closer to completion and have an actual physical, tangible book, I'll start plugging that. And you'll see some familiar faces on there. I don't want to give too much information out because when you start talking about shit, it doesn't go through sometimes. But you can find me on social media at the One One Podcast. If you're listening to this show, it's on my feed. So make sure to follow me on social media. And leave us a review, you know, five stars. Let us know what you think on the YouTube channel of what you think about the show. A lot of, we've you got, you got some books you want us to read for you and decipher? Let us know. Occult Book Club, this is what we're here for. Yeah, we've been getting really good feedback as far as everything. You know, some people are having revelations. You know, we talked about the crowd. and Oh, I, I do got something for you. I, I don't know if I told you this, but I, I bought a uh, Spanish version of Leo Taxel's the mysteries of freemasonry which started in my opinion started the the satanic panic much longer ago uh but it's all in spanish and it's been many many years since i completed you need my help bro Is that what you're so i might to need out? your help deciphering some of it yeah <laughs> yeah you told me you showed me it but yeah that's fine at all if it's the span i mean is it spaniard spanish do you know it is spaniard spanish and it was translated from Whoa. french to Spaniard Spanish, um, so I don't know how much was lost in that French to Spanish translation, and even more from Spanish to English. American. So, <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be a rough read, bro, for sure. But I'll, I'll help you the best way I can. If not, find an original French person, bro, and have them translate it. Well, I got the Spanish version though, so then I have to buy the French version if I want a French person. To Is translate that online? It. Uh, yeah, it is, but I don't know how much I trust any of the online versions mm. of it. Seriously, be ju the very nature of Leo Taxel's book is that, A, it's supposed to make fun of Freemasonry and the Vatican in general, but then there's also lots of people within the Vatican and Freemasonry which are trying to shit all over Leo Taxel, so <laughs> I wouldn't put it above anybody to like mistranslate it and put out a version and that get perpetuated, because that's essentially what the book itself started as a guy just yeah. made a bunch of bullshit up and got it spread out so it it's one of those things that i feel it's important to like read the actual and i got a version i think from like 1887 or something Jeez. so i'll read the actual version that started the whole satanic panic and see what it says for myself awesome i will work on that and we'll see you on the next occult book club hopefully That's right. the next one's soon. gonna be three and a half hours and Fuck then we're gonna do four and a half and then five and a half Fuck you, Thomas. I'm starving right now. So we'll see you guys on the <laughs> other side. And see you guys. catch you later.